Before we kick this show off, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Under Pressure Outdoors is brought to you in part by Hasmore Outdoor Products. Hasmore Outdoor Products manufactures quality replacement seats for a multitude of climber brands as well as a host of other products built with the hunter in mind. Take it from us. Your butt will thank you and you'll be able to spend more hours in your stand. Hop over to their website by clicking on the link in the podcast description and order the tree stand trick out kit for your stand today and you'll have everything you need to hunt longer and harder. Make sure you use code UPO15 at checkout to get 15% off your next order. I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. So, by the way, when you're in the podcast, you want to be right up on this thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Otherwise, I know. Otherwise right. I sound like I'm in a tin can, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Chuck used to have an Honest to God radio show. Yeah. Oh, that's right. You Chuck and... That. Yeah, that's right. You, you were with... Uh, um, Backwater. Fast, uh, fast Tech Motor. Uh, Sid. Mm. Yeah. Sid, Sid. Sid was with us. Yeah, it was me, Sid, Johnny DiTerlizzi, and uh, Rick McCurley. We need to get Sid back on. We've been talking For about real? him. I've been Shit. texting Sid a little bit, too. Not a problem. I'll get Sid over here. Oh, I can get Sid over here. Sid's my just... partner in the turkey hunting stuff. Hey, he, yeah. he, uh, that's Sid's number one customer. I was going to say, he's put a magician on the house. How many, props, <laughs> how many props have you bought? <laughs> no, not just a lot of motor parts. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, you know, I keep telling guys, everybody who buys those damn things, they want to suit them up, make them faster. I keep telling them, quit. It's a lawnmower engine. I, I bought mine. It was already souped up. Sid originally built my motor. And, uh, like you wouldn't have souped it up anyways. I probably would have taken me a hell of a lot longer. But every time I go to sell it, I'm like, man, I want to sell this motor. Sid's like, why? Yeah. I'm like, because I just, I'm tired of fixing it. And Sid's like, that is one of, <laughs> Sid's like, listen, your motor is built to the 10th. He said my motor probably has over, at this point, it probably has over 2,000 hours on it. And he was like, that motor, even though like little stuff breaks here and there, he's like, the block's never going to go bad. He's like, that motor's no. been an absolute beast. I don't know why you'd ever get rid of it. You see that Gator Tracks has a viral video of Jordan yeah. jumping his boat. Yes, yeah. I've seen Over it. Over yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I know Glenn, I know Glenn pretty well, a little too. Bit. I've hunted with Glenn, too. He's he's a good guy. We've talked to Sid about getting Glenn on here, too. Glenn will do it. Yeah. Glenn will do it. He'd Man. do it for Sid to heartbeat. Yeah, because he, he loves it. Sid buys so many damn boats. Oh, no. Sid, uh, last time I was up there, and I had... My rectifier went bad on my boat. Sid had the, I mean, I loved that Gator track. It was nice, man. The big brand new forty horse, uh, Pro Drive on the back. Oh man, Pro Drive. I would say I've known Sid for even before I had a mud boat. I I would go. I had buddies that had mud boats. We would go not even to get anything fixed. We would just go up and hang out at Sid's. Mm-hmm. You know the, uh, there's a comment. I forget. Oh, one of the dudes on Face or. Uh, TikTok. He was kind of going on about Floridians in a, in a good way, a playful way, and he's like, "Man, you don't choose the Florida life. Florida life chooses you." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's like when when Giselle finally announced her divorce from Tom. 
There was that. Did you see that meme that they had up? Oh like yeah. A, ever since he moved to Florida, he put a salt life sticker on the back of our window of our vehicle. Yeah. I, I asked somebody what it means, and I don't know, but we're living it. <laughs> <laughs> never wears a shirt anymore. Yeah. <laughs> He's always running off to Publix for a pub sub. He doesn't even eat bread. <laughs> I saw I saw one today where the guy was like that. His like when his like wife says, "I'm gonna divorce you if you keep hunting," and his face slowly fades into Tom Brady stain. <laughs> 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 oh, you know, after football, man, he'd be hanging out with Chuck hunting turkeys. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, forgot now, to mention Chuck brought his pet turkey in here today. Yeah. <laughs> now, mind you, the most impressive part of that. He had a big old dip of snuff in his lip. Yeah, and he just ate a bunch yeah. of peanuts and gumbo. I was really, <laughs> yeah, I was really surprised with the little kiki in there, even with the dip in. Yeah, well, really you know when you when you do it every day of the season, <laughs> every year for the last twenty four years, it's uh, you just kind of it's second nature. This oh, thing, I believe it. you know, it stays in my mouth all. That's why I make my own calls because I got tired of blowing those thicker latex calls that give you mouth fatigue. Mm-hmm. You know, you're hunting all day long, and we'd take to stop. You know, hunting private land, you can hunt all day. And now that we have it open on public land, too, it's even better. But I'd, you know, up at 4 o'clock in the morning, we're sitting down around 6.30 or so. I start making tree calls at first light, and I'm calling all day. And we shoot something, we keep on going and try and get another one. And you get tired after a while. So you want something that's lightweight and doesn't take a whole lot of air. And that since I'm making them myself, I don't care if it doesn't last as long as the, the commercially built ones. Because I'm just going to make myself another one. You know, I, I sit down and I make about 50 of each one of the calls that I make right at the beginning of the season, and that's it. When I run out, I run out. Speaking of first light, that owl call you got is <clears throat> something oh, serious. That is that is the best owl call I've ever heard. It's really? that thing. Do you make that too? I do. Now, the insert, I will tell you, is just one that I copied off of a really cheap insert, and I just made a mold and pour it. Yeah, and yeah. that's it. And then I just cut them out and clean them up a little bit with a little. But it sounds blade. extremely realistic. But this is just you know, piece number of. number one. It's one inch hose, rubber hose, yeah. and then I taper the inside of it so it's not too sharp on your mouth. And you wrap the um, the insert with a little bit of electrical tape so it gets a nice good seal. And I hand trim the um, the reed, but. Growl you do is pretty spectacular. That liter- that's amazing. And that's, that's the same growl I use on the turkey call when I'm doing a purr. You got to be Cuban to do that. It is. <laughs> I got tongue skills. Yeah. That's from rolling all the R's. All rolling on my R's. Royendo los arras. Before we get any further in here, let me introduce everybody we got around the table. I'm your host, Will Krebs. We got Jordan here this evening. I'm here. Let's get it. We got Jim. Yes, sir. We got Briar. Hi, y'all. We've got Mr. Chuck Echenique. 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 Yep, that's me. Got it right. And uh, I guess we're really just here to talk about hunting and in general. Outdoors. Outdoors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I say you do you do some deer hunts, too, don't you? <coughs> well, the deer hunts that I do are for a future of hunting in Florida. Okay. So they're new adult hunters and youth hunters first time. 
And um, right now, um, FHF has two properties, one in Gulf Hammock and one in Telosia, which is um, just south of Hosford, west of Tallahassee. Um, so it's on the far side of Lake Talquin. But um, we're going to lose the, um, the Gulf Hammock property at the end of this season. Um, it belongs to some personal friends of mine. They were kind enough to let us lease it for the last five years. But uh, their kids are now of an age where they want to use it more often, so you can't fault them for that. No. Right. Yeah. But, you know, we, we run um, eight hunters on the on the Gulf Hammock property per hunt, usually six hunts a year. And then on the Telosia property, we do another six hunts with 12 hunters. We've got 1,500 acres up there, and it's absolutely loaded with deer and turkeys. So we usually have a pretty good haul on most of the hunts, especially once we get into – um, January and February hunts when the rut's really kicking up there. There's there's a lot of deer dropping, so it's a lot of fun. I believe it. I love seeing things. <clears throat> I love seeing things for kids, but even more than that, it's great to see things for the adult onset hunter. Yeah, because in turn, if you if you teach, uh, you you take a guy or a girl who's nineteen, twenty years old, they've never hunted before, they want to learn. You teach them how to hunt. They they get the itch, and then they later on have kids. You don't need to take their kids. They'll take they'll their take kids. their kids exactly. Yeah. And actually, we sell out the new adult hunters so much faster than we do the youth hunts, because most of the youth hunts, you know, you figure where are we advertising? Well, we're advertising on hunting pages on social media. We're advertising on FWC. We're advertising on our own website. Who goes to those things? Hunters, hunters, hunters right? So they see something for their kid and go, oh yeah, it's a it's a free trip for my kid. And then they get a better offer and they cancel on us, you know, or they got uh, grandpa's going to come down and take us over to, you know, the plantation. So we're going to go do that instead of hunting your little, little tract of land. Right. And, and I don't fault them, you know, but it makes it hard for us to fill them up. And we just did one. I just did one that was supposed to have six kids, ended up with three. Jeez. Oh, man. You know? man, what a wasted so opportunity. The ones for the it was kids. a wasted opportunity, but the kids who were there had a great time. I mean, the weather wasn't very good. It was warm. Um, but we had we had one that forgot to put a primer in his oh. his in his rifle, oh, and he missed a six point. And then we had one girl that had multiple opportunities at different deer, but she did not want to kill a doe, and she did not want to kill a young buck. She wanted her first deer to, to be what the state regulations were, even though she's allowed as a youth to kill pretty much whatever she wants. That's fair over enough. Five inches. You can't fault her. For I didn't fault her for it, no. And and I mean her dad and she came out. Her dad's a fairly new hunter. And um, they had joined a club this year, but they really didn't have a lot of opportunity to get her out. So this was a better controlled environment for them. And she's had a great time with us. And, um, you know, I told her that she wants to come back. She's more than welcome to come back again for another youth hunt. You know, I like to see the kids repeat a couple of times because they're still novice for a while. Once they've harvested something and they've got that itch, send them on with their parents to go somewhere else. I'm all for building more trophy hunters. That yep. way there's more out there for us sluggard meat hunters just knock them down. <laughs> 12 well, she, points are better, ladies. <clears throat> I don't, it's not that she was actually trophy. She just wanted I'm something picking. that, yeah, I know you are. Yeah. But she, she was just literally looking to, she's 15, so she thinks of herself as, I'm almost 16, I'll be a yeah. licensed hunter next year. Yeah. I want to follow those rules. It's kind of like when you're a kid and you don't hit off the ladies' tees, you hit off the men's tees, and if yeah. you're hitting off the men's tees when you're in high school, but you're playing... You go and hit off the blue or the black tees, you know. <laughs> even though you don't have to, you start you, you challenge yourself more, and that's that's kind of what it was. Hey, I'm all for it, really. Just you know, my comment was completely aside, just in case somebody just screamed at the radio. I'm actually all for encouraging people to be a little bit more selective in truth. 
you know, I, I joke about knocking them down and things. Of course, I did shoot that 80-pound dopey doe. On Rock Springs, but <laughs> <laughs> no, hey man, for the most part, me. we still give you shit for. But that's now, here, here's the thing, man. Yeah. It, and I, the when it comes to does, and I and I, I hate, I, I understand it. <clears throat> You'll have that big doe, and she's a just a hoss. You know, you talking like Florida, she'd be 130, 140 pounds. That's a hoss. That's a hoss doe, <clears throat> and she's. But every year you see her show up, she's got twins. Mm-hmm. You want to leave her alone? Yeah. And I understand, I understand the want to kill the big doe, but, man, if she's producing twins every year, you see her all year long with two fawns, then two yearlings, then you leave know, if you, her alone because she's raising two deer every year to adult oh, yeah. deer. I well, do that on her lease. If, yeah, yeah. I, pick, if you're, I pick off a yearling every year, man, for oh, a deal yeah. and leave the, mama to, leave the mama to roll. If you're <laughs> hunting a piece of private property where you have the ability to control what you harvest and, and how the deer grow on it, then absolutely you want to you want to leave those brood does alone and take the really old does that are now barren, or take out a young doe that's you know a year and a half old, um, that doesn't have any yearlings with her that's just barely out of yearling herself because, in order I mean a a, a, a female doe a young doe can get pregnant at seven months but chances are very unlikely, at a year and a half that's usually the time they start but they almost always only cast a single fawn. So you're feeding, essentially you're feeding a deer for a year and a half to two and a half years before she becomes viable. So you want to take a grown young doe over a doe in her prime if you're trying to build your herd. If your herd's stable and you don't want to build your herd any further, then you can go ahead and take one or two of those out. Don't over harvest your does, especially down here in Florida. But um, I always tell my guys, you know, they're like, well, you'll hear people say, well, you got to you got to harvest them before the rut. What's the difference? I, I, a dead doe does not have any fawns, so it doesn't matter if you kill her in October or you kill her in January. She's not having any fawns, and I can tell you right now, in this state, ninety six percent of our does are bred by the end of the season. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Okay. I, I think people's thing with before the rut is they're like, if we have more does on the property, there's going to be bucks here to chase them. I, I don't know if it's true, but the way I think about it. When people are like, if you have more does, you're going to have more bucks because they're going to be chasing does. But to me, I kind of relate it to like turkey hunting, where if I have a bunch of hens, my my gobbler is going to be tangled up on those hens that he already has. That, that's so, true. So why does he want to come to me? So, so th- here's the problem in Florida. In most of the country, you'll hear biologists talking about buck to doe ratio being three to one, two to one, one to one, right? On trophy properties, they try and get them two to one, one to one. So you have more competition for does. The bucks are more active. In Florida... It, now, when you say two to one, you're talking two bucks to one doe. I'm talking two does to one buck. For more competition for does? Yeah, yeah. For, for more competition for the bucks to chase does, you want, no, you want between three does to one buck to one doe to one buck. Okay? Because a buck's going to try and mate as many does as he can right. while they're in estrus. And he's as soon as the one gets done standing for you know 48 to 72 hours... And he's impregnated her. He moves on to the next one because she's not going to stand for him anymore. So they will mate as many times as they can while she's at peak estrus. Then once they come out of estrus, or once they've been bred, she goes back to feeding and doing her thing. She doesn't want to have any part of him. He will move on to the next doe. And a mature buck, and by mature I say three and a half years old or older, right? A three and a half year old or older buck will have a harem of does that he's tending. He'll have his own little part of the herd cut out. Your satellite bucks, your year and a half and two and a half year olds, might have one or two, 
but most of the time they're going to be younger does that aren't going to be breed as well or cast off as many as many fawns. So what you're looking to do is, if you have the ability to control a big piece of property and control the size of the herd and the amount of nutrition they're getting, you can worry about your buck to doe ratio. On most lands in Florida, you don't have that kind of control. You don't have at least 5,000 acres. You don't have a limited number of hunters, right? And you don't have a real trophy program where you're feeding protein year-round, food plots year-round, and you're controlling that every aspect of that herd. So the best that most people can do in Florida is what we call quality management. You shoot anything that's three and a half years old or older. You don't worry so much about does. If you want to take your does, you can. Just don't take a bunch of them. Because the idea is the rutting activity is going to be prevalent in daylight hours when the conditions are right for it, right? Moon phase will have an effect on their movement during daylight hours. Um, Temperature will have an effect on them. Hydrology of the land will have an effect on them. But as far as feeding times, that's really neither here nor there. The rut's going to kick off when the rut's going to kick off. It's, It's guided by the photo period. So while the rutting activity is happening, you will see more and more of it. And as your age class of your herd gets older, that activity will concentrate over a shorter period of time. So you will see an actual rut, which we're starting to see now since Mm -hmm. we put in the antler point restrictions. Right? So what we're trying to do on, on, on quality management is just have the bucks that you're willing to shoot, limit the number, and, and cast off as many fawns as you can so they will survive. Because our, our recruitment rate in Florida, and recruitment is the having a fawn go from birth to its first full year, full, first full antler cycle, okay? So a year and a half. So making that deer a year and a half old, that's recruitment. In South Florida, Zone A, for instance, it takes 10 does to create one buck to reach recruitment. You get one buck and one doe fawn reach recruitment out of 10 does. In this region here, it takes about four to six because your deer density is higher, your your soil's better, and you've got a more healthy herd here. You get into the panhandle, and it's more like three to one. You know, you can, you yeah, because they, they have more of the, the sharecropping. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It, it, What's yeah. whacking them down in zone A? Is it a combination of bad land and then everything? You know, got lions and it's, pythons. Well, and the, 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 cats, population. the cats do a big number on them. And the pythons do a little bit on them. Because a deer is a very big creature for a python to get around. You know, well, <clears throat> but what you what you do have down there is the changing hydrology. You've got drought. Water. Yeah. You got drought and then all of a sudden they're holding water back because of the drought and then you get a rain, a heavy rain or a storm uh, event come in and everything floods and then all those deer get concentrated up onto little islands or they get flooded and killed. You know, a fawn's not going to be able to survive having to swim 5 6 miles to get yeah. to a you know, a, a dry patch. South Florida still has that that nutrition though too because you i, I mean and, it, and i i think it's well it's a prominent south though because of uh like social media now that you're seeing more like class bucks come out of south florida what you're seeing is the deer on the south florida ridge yeah so there is a high spot yep. in florida that runs from just west of lake okeechobee all the way up into this area here yep okay and so down there, because of all the agriculture over the years and the fact that um, the soil there is richer than it is in other lower parts of that 
that southern tip of Florida, the nutrition is better, so the deer get bigger. They also have, over the years, brought in deer from other states, mm-hmm. so you've got those genetic traits going on. That happened down there, and it also happened over in Hillsborough and Pasco County, which is why in Hillsborough and Pasco, there's two reasons why they're bigger. Part of it is the genetics. Part of it is that prehistorically, when Florida's landmass was sticking up out of the water, that portion of the panhandle where the rut is in February was coastally equivalent to where Hillsborough and Pasco County are now. So those deer would migrate back and forth through there. So you have the same genetic strand and the same type of whitetail in both of those isolated locations now that the water's come up. Yeah, I'd actually told Wayne about because I'm a I'm a clearing estimator for a civil construction company, and I use uh, Google Earth a lot. And I had noticed through like zooming in and out on Google Earth that there's I, you can see that ridge and mm-hmm. in the satellite. And I told him, I was like, look at it. Like, you can literally tell on this ridge that runs up through the middle of Florida, it is nothing but agriculture. Right. Well, there's Central Florida Ridge and there's a South Florida Ridge. The South Florida Ridge runs through, like, the north end of Palm Beach County. Up to, like, Martin County. You know, yeah, up to, yeah, up to, like, Montverde. And then the Central Florida Ridge runs from Lake Wales all the way up to Gainesville. Yep. You can see both of them on mm-hmm. Google Earth. It's crazy how you. I mean, you can literally just based off the 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 difference in treetops and agriculture and everything, you can see both of them. That's interesting to hear you talk about uh, how you manage deer on how the different key points you need to manage deer on private property. You know, you talked about the amount of people you have and all that, <clears throat> and it made me think about when I hunted Fort Campbell for many years, uh, about five years when I lived up there. They, all of a sudden, I want to say, what, two years into me living there, they changed it to, uh, they called a, it was called the earn a buck program. Right. You had to shoot a doe first. Had to shoot a doe first. And they wanted to get their buck to doe ratio down to a one to two or a one to one. Mm-hmm. I was like, how are we ever going to do this? Well, but they had that. They had a, that's 105,000 acres. They control the amount of hunters that are out there every single day. They not necessarily, they don't really control protein, but they control, they have agriculture on the base and it's mostly soybean, sorghum, and corn. So they're getting all the protein they need right. from the soybeans. Right. And then acorns galore mm-hmm. out there. Now that you say it, I'm like, hey, you know what? Okay. So uh, maybe they're not as crazy as I thought Well, when you're, <laughs> when you're growing bucks. And they were, you know, there's antler restrictions as well. Yeah. There. Well, when you're growing bucks, when you want to get those, that weight up and you want to get that antler size up. It's important for them to be feeding on high protein from the time they drop their set of antlers to the time they finish growing their next set. Because once the antlers are hard, everything's just going into, they're already in rut mode at that point. They're just putting on fat to get them through the rut. That's when the acorns are dropping, early fall. So they put on a bunch of fats because they're going to burn that fat off when they're chasing because they're not going to be eating a whole lot. But during the spring and the summer is when they need the maximum nutrition they can get. You could fill one of those Rubbermaid tubs with green leafy foliage. That's about what one deer consumes in green vegetables per day. Good Lord. Okay. So you're talking about a 15-gallon container. Yeah. All right. They're going to consume that much during the spring and summer daily in soft leafy stuff. When you get into harder mass, you know, hard mass foods, they're going to consume quite a bit too, but it's not going to nutrition. It's just going to survival. So in a deer's body, as they're absorbing nutrition, everything that they absorb goes into their muscle structure and their bone structure first. It goes into antlers last. And I don't care how much protein you give them. 
Most deer cannot pro, you know, process more than about 16% crude protein. So anything you see with more than that in it is a waste of money if you're buying protein feed. And the other thing is is that when you're, when you're looking at buying protein feed, you want to make sure that it has all the essential minerals as well because they need selenium, they need copper, they need phosphorus. Um, they need vitamins A, E, and C, and D. And they need vitamin B, just like we do. So they need all their vitamins. They need a whole bunch of different minerals in there. They need sodium, but not as much as like a red trace mineral that you give to cows would be. Yeah, that's where like we had talked. Uh, we've talked to Forest Wildlife Solutions, and he was saying the same thing. He was like, when I started like this business, he said I started looking at stuff, and I was like, man, they're just throwing all kinds of crap in here that's not necessary. Mm-hmm. And so like now I, I have a piece of property here in town that i somewhat hunt sometimes but uh but we've started feeding like he has a winter stabilizer which your protein's down a little bit lower because like you said they're not trying to grow their horns but it's still keep it's still putting that weight on them throughout the winter well, and it's good for the does because as they're ovulating and once they get pregnant and start lactating they need that same stuff mm-hmm. to produce healthier milk so he was like i want to put i, w- I want to start building feed that's genuinely what deer need, and I don't want to put it out at a price that's going to break people's bank. Right. Which he hasn't, and and it's been – he's done great with it. I think he's the, the number one, uh, like, deer feed supplier in the nation right now. So we're getting <clears throat> we're getting some relatively technical stuff. So, Chuck, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about who you are, what your background is, because a lot of people know you about from your from your advocacy work, but I don't think a lot of folks know that – you know, there's a little something bumping around between between the years as well. <laughs> well, I um, I went to um, to high school in, in Tampa. I went to an all boys Jesuit high school, and from there I went to uh, USF and I got a degree in biology. Um, but I wanted to be a wildlife biologist, and they didn't have a wildlife biology degree there, but they do at Auburn. So I was able to do a course through Auburn that allowed me to have my um, certification as a wildlife biologist as well so they took the work that i did at usf plus the work i did up there and kind of pushed it together and so i've been certified as a wildlife biologist since 1996 and um you know the 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 field has changed dramatically jordan had his first birthday in 1996 oh my goodness Uh, i'm just shocked that you actually graduated from usf you're like the only one (laughs) my wife did too and i've got a handful of friends too that did but yeah, there was a few of us. Most of it, when I was going there, it was a big transient school. People, it was a stop off to go somewhere else. Yeah, and they sure as hell can't play football. No. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> anyway, UCF. <laughs> you can't, can't play. They, they can't yeah. play football either right now. Um, what are you talking about, man? They just beat the sixteenth, sixteenth ranked team in the nation. Don't get Jim started. We got to no. talk about hunting. Not, yeah, and they play Alabama. In the, they the play Alabama in the Cotton Bowl this year. <laughs> in any event. Um, so I, I did that, but there's there was no money at the time in biology and wildlife biology. So I there still a, isn't, but go ahead. Yeah, well there is there is if you land the right job with the right company or right. the right the right landowners, uh, you can make a nice living doing it. But it's it's very difficult. Those jobs are few and far between. So um, I became a private investigator while I was going to school and just kept doing that, and I'm still doing that today. You know, thirty something years later. I didn't know Chuck was a spy. I didn't know he was either. I'm a spook. spook. Yeah, I do fraud investigations for insurance companies. No kidding. Hmm. Yep. 
So you're the guy that sits out there in front of a disability claim when, when the guy's mowing his lawn? Yeah, it's, well, it's more video. We don't do any pictures. I haven't done pictures since like 1997. He lifted an entire 50-pound bag of corn. That man does not have a back injury. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, no, I got guys doing that with the you know construction guys. Oh, can't work. And they're lifting 80-pound bags of concrete, two of them at a time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not a problem, man. <clears throat> can't work over the table is what they can't do. Right. 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 <laughs> but... But back to hunting and uh, the Florida F Florida FHF is what you called it. What's up? That's Florida. The future of hunting in Florida. For, future of hunting in Florida. Right. So uh, that's a, that's an organization that was started um, in 2004. We had a, a wildlife summit here in Florida. Mm-hmm. So leaders from across the hunting community got together and we had this big meeting powwow. And Future of Hunting and Florida was born from that. It's um, it's a board of directors made up of different leaders from the community. So we've got people from NWTF there, from the Bow Hunters Council, from the Sir Isaac Walton League, um, from DU, from United Waterfowlers, you know, um, different members. And we have a board of directors. We have we had an executive director, uh, John Fuller, but he passed away this August unexpectedly. Um, but. Hopefully, you know, I'll end up getting that position here first of the year. Um, and so the, the mission was to promote hunting to new hunters, kids primarily at first, and then that morphed into young adults as well. Plus, you know, we do new old hunters for guys who used to hunt but don't anymore. So we try and reintroduce guys who have left the fold and bring them back in. Last year we had an 89-year-old gentleman who hadn't hunted in over 30 years who came back and killed a 200-plus-pound hog as his first kill in over 30 years. And, and he was over the moon, and he had his grandkid with him, and now he's taking his grandkid hunting again. Yeah. So we not only brought awesome. somebody back, we got him to reintroduce it to somebody new. I was going to say, it was really cool. I think I've talked about it before. When we were in Rock Springs uh, on one of our permitted hunts, where there was a kid that had brought his dad out and his dad hadn't hunted in what like 15 years or something like that and when the dad got to talking about <coughs> being able to get out there and hunt with his son or like having seen the deer like he was speaking about his experiences throughout the day and literally getting teary-eyed that's awesome like, about how much he missed being able to do that and that he was able to do that with his son again now and it was really amazing to see that yeah there's um there's a really good book out called um Oh, good. The name escapes me right now. It's from boys to men of heart. Um, and then it has a colon and something else. I think it's, a, it's it basically what it does is it talks about how boys learn to become men at the hands of their fathers while they're afield, while they're hunting and camping, but primarily hunting and shooting. And that that's something that our society has been missing and is continuing to miss at a greater and greater level. You know, as our population starts to explode, continues to explode, we've got less and less hunters per capita, which is why our numbers are shrinking. Even though we're actually growing our hunter numbers in Florida because our population is growing, it's not growing at the same rate as the population. Oh, not by a dang sight. You know, we, we as a state issue hunting, freshwater, saltwater, and hunting licenses combined about a million licenses a year over that. 1.6, yeah. Yeah, but when you take a look at the hunting licenses, what's the hunt, what's the re- resident hunting license? Resident for? hunting licenses is only like 125,000 out of a state of 200 and how many million people. But we don't count 
non-licensed hunters, those who have aged out that continue to hunt, and those who have not yet reached 16 that are hunting. Yeah, fair enough. We you don't know, count any of them. If we count all of those, there was a, a shooting sports foundation study that did that here, and we're at somewhere around a half a million to three-quarters of a million hunters. A lot of them over 65, though? <laughs> a lot of them are kids and over oh, 65. Really? A lot, yeah, of, them are kids, a lot huh? of them are kids. So we were talking about that. Well, you've, you've mentioned a couple times about even if it was just for Pittman Robertson, like put a $5 license out there since, since I know we're like, there's three different levels, but we're a level two. Oh yeah. 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 So state you, for Pittman Robertson. Cause, but we don't get the, we don't get the licenses cause they're not buying them. Right. You, you hit a, a, a point where, you know, because you, the senior citizens over 65 don't have to buy a license. <clears throat> if you were to make them pay a dollar over a processing fee, then we can count that as a license. It's sold. actually, it's a, it's three fifty. The, yeah, so, the amount would be three fifty per license. That covers the cost of actually printing the license, the handling fee, and the amount that would qualify us for Pittman Robinson. Then, my thing is at, at sixty-five. It, right. The 30, problem 30 is, is that if we're going, that's a new license, so that has to go through the legislature. Hmm. Well, it has to go through the legislature. the The, the legislature has to vote on it because it's a new license. So, so what FWC would have to do is draft a resolution, give it to their um, legislative liaison. And then shop it around and have somebody pick it up and make it a bill. I would like to see that the does same not thing. seem like a heavy lift. Now here's the same thing I would also like to see it, it do the same thing for people who come from out of state to fish with a charter captain. Well, they already don't have to. If you're fishing with a charter captain, you have a six pack license, right? But okay. get what he's saying is people. make them get a license. Some oh, states get a three dollar and fifty cent license right. yeah. to, just to because we're the sport fish capital of the world. We right. could we could easily turn this into one of the greatest states for Pittman Robertson funding if we just charge three dollars and fifty cents. Dude, you you've already paid for an outrageous condo wherever you went or a hotel room wherever you went to stay to fish. Yeah. You go to Isla Mirada, good lord. You can afford three hundred three dollars and fifty bucks. Yeah. You go to the gas station and buy uh, uh, an energy drink, you're paying that. I mean come on. Yeah. Right. Alaska's got no share of visitors, and if you want to hunt, you want to fish up there, you're buying a license. Yes. Yeah. And you're using a guide because you can't go as a non-resident on your own. Crazy. You have to hire a guide in Alaska. Uh, rightfully so. I Not to fish, that. but to hunt. That. Oh, to hunt. I'm thinking think, fish. I don't, I don't think you should uh, you should send uh, the, just your average Joe from Florida out into the Alaska wild to hunt. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Especially not on <laughs> yeah. Kodiak. Though. Yeah. <laughs> So like, we, got, think, we got bears. It's not a big deal. Not the same thing. Not the same no. thing. No. Not even close. <laughs> I was going to say, when I was up there, man, of course, you can do it if you're a resident, but not if you're not a resident. We could have been, I mean, the salmon were everywhere. And yeah, they'll swim, they swim up them. rainwater dishes, snag them. You step in there and pick them up. Oh, no, I'm just saying, but you, you're not allowed, as a non-resident, you're not allowed to snag them. Right. They have to be hooked in the mouth. You can't net them. You can't dip net them unless you're on one of the reservations with the, you know, with the tribes. Then they, you, you can do whatever they let you do over there, dude. When I say, I mean, the, this isn't like out in the country. They're in the ditches. This is like there's a hotel right there, and there's salmon right here. Oh, I know. <laughs> the Kenai Run is ridiculous. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. Oh man, so I, I gotta tell a little bit of a story here. Um, it just it it kind of makes me think because we're talking about like people coming from out of state, so. Yesterday, I'd gotten a call from a buddy, and he said, Hey, I got this buddy that I know 
that is uh, broke down in his boat, and you're going to have to have a mud boat to get to him. And he's, uh, is your boat running? Because you know, sometimes my boat doesn't run. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. He's Very like, can you go terms. get him? And I'm like, well, my boat's having a problem with keeping prime right now, so to to get there, I would have had to pump the ball the whole time. He's like, he's a mile downriver, and I'm like, I do not want to pump the ball on that boat for a mile. And uh, I'm like, no, my boat's not running, but let me call Briar. Briar might be able to go again with his boat. So I call Briar. Briar's like, yeah, I'm over here uh, cleaning out this house. I can't get, it's going to be a while before I'm able to get to my boat. He's like, but I trust you with my boat. If you want to go get my boat, you can go get this guy. I'm like, cool, so I'm going to go get your boat. So I went and got Briar's boat. And I run. This guy ended up, he wasn't, he was not a mile down there. He may have been a quarter mile down the river. Well, I get him and I get back. And he's like, uh, the, the, what brought me to this conclusion was there was a guy that when I was backing my boat down in, there was a guy that was like, I think he was from Kentucky or something. He was from somewhere a little further north. He was down here wintering. And he was like, Hey, uh, what are you guys catching this river? And we're like, ah, you know, some bass, maybe some striper. Few gators. Yeah, some bass, maybe some striper. And uh, these guys were out pan fishing. And he's like, you know, I read online something about smallmouth. And we're like, no. Wrong river. <laughs> not here. <laughs> Negative. Wrong state. No, sir, you're not catching smallmouth here. And he's like, oh, okay. But funny thing is, this guy, I was telling his buddy that owned the boat, I'm like, yeah, man, we, uh, if you guys like pan fishing, we do the canoe trip every year. I'm like 50 miles down river on the swine. You can catch the mess out of some pan fishing. He's like, yeah. He's like, well, what do you guys call it? I'm like under pressure outdoors. He's like, that's really awesome. Not 10 seconds after I said that his buddy gets out of his truck from back in the trailer. And he's like, Hey, uh, Jesse told me you guys run under pressure outdoors. And I'm like, yeah, man. He's like, I've been messaging back and forth to you guys. I'm part of the group. I'm like, this is, <laughs> I was like, this is sick, man. Like, we're famous. Yeah. I just saved <laughs> this random, like I just saved this random guy and I already, like, he already knows who I am. So, <clears throat> speaking of the Swanee River trip, that's also the only place, one of the few places you'll come as close as you can to catching a smallmouth bass in the state of Florida. Where, uh, yeah. The Swanee River? Swanee bass. Swanee bass. Yeah. Shoal bass, yeah. 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 They look extremely similar. But they are not. <clears throat> no, they do have a bigger mouth though, than the small mouth. They do. Yeah. But when you you know when you catch a swanee bass, if you pull up pictures like, well, how do you tell? I couldn't do it if you just said, well, which one's the swanee bass? But they're distinctly different yes. from the, the the black the big black bass. Oh. And when you look, once you get that pattern down, after you've seen it a couple times, like oh, swanee bass, swanee bass. Well, it's like the difference. Like, well, shit, that's grouper. all that's there. It's like the difference between a gag and a black grouper. Most people couldn't tell you the difference because they don't catch enough of them or know them. But once you see one. They're distinctly different because yeah. blacks have got a real pattern to them, and the guys are kind of just amorphous. Once you, once we handled that Swanee bass, I was like, oh, okay, well then that's that's it. Yeah, that's yeah. all it yeah. took. Hmm. He actually said it for you; could have kept it, but yeah, <laughs> Chuck, you had to, to knock off a couple of days in May. In May, yeah, I'm yeah. trying to catch back May up from Turkey. <laughs> I'm trying to get caught back up from Turkey. It's going to be beginning of May. Yeah. If sink, I can make it, I'll try and make it. Sink under mile on the All river. depends on how the palm frond business is doing and how beat up I am from turkey season. <laughs> Man, there's got to be somebody in uh, Branford that needs watching. 
Yeah. There's got to be somebody. <laughs> somebody's got to be willing to pay me to go up there and watch them. That's the problem. Uh, there was this guy on the river last year. Now we won't get into that. Uh, <laughs> the, the king of the Swanee. The king of the Swanee. Yeah. Um, but I forgot where I was going to go with that. How dare you? Well, going back to the Pittman Roberts and stuff, you know, since we were talking about that, we've I've been pushing for that for probably a decade now, and we've gone through a whole bunch of different commissioners, and they like the sound of it, but they never do anything about it. And you know, getting staff to move forward on anything that they're not instructed to do is near an impossibility. Yeah. I, and the problem with the legislators is, and most people don't realize this, but most of your junior legislators they're allowed two bills per year, right? Not when you're in the Senate, but when you're in the House. They don't want to waste that political capital on something minute. They're trying to make a big splash when they when they help sponsor a bill and they, they do their own bill and sponsor it, and they get sponsoring for it. So it's always about, you know, what makes a big impact. And and hunting stuff is way down the totem pole. It's we, we tried for a long time to, you know, get um get get it changed in our constitution where we are a right to hunt state and have a an actual hunter's bill of rights. Had a couple people interested in it, never got any traction, couldn't get them to move forward. Tried to do the same thing by putting FWC in charge of all outdoor recreation in the state and getting rid of the redundancy from all these different state agencies. <laughs> you would have thought I'd asked for their firstborn child of every person who worked at the state. I was going to say, man, now you're talking about putting people out of work, though, if you do that. Well, it was, Taking yeah, power away from them. Taking anyway. power away from them because every one of them has their, you know, they do consolidate law enforcement. But every one of them has their own biology departments, their own recreation departments, you know, all these different people that have got jobs that if you put it under FWC, now they're not working for FDAX and they're not working for DEP and they're not working for forestry. They're working for FWC. And then FWC becomes the massive bureaucracy and um, nobody wants to work at the smaller places. So, Briar, how do you feel about running for office? Not gonna happen. <laughs> can you see? Can, can you see Briar running around our Howland Halls of Tallahassee? <laughs> Which, by the way, if you ever go up there and lobby, mullet and everything. They when they built those buildings up there, there's no fucking way they use blueprints. They just attach things randomly. Oh yeah. Hey, we oh, got yeah. some land over here. Throw up a tower. We connect with some halls. You know. Yeah. I mean, and then they don't. The halls don't even come together at the same height. Hey, if, if Pennsylvania can have Fetterneck, we can have Brian. I was about to say. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, hold on. So, so there's towers there, like multiple floors? Yeah, three-story buildings. And yeah. things you, might that catch just... me, you might catch me in there working on the elevator. Yeah. That's about it. <laughs> I'm surprised I don't have elevator to go sideways in that place, man. So one last thing, back to future hunting. Mm-hmm. Chuck, you, you may very well be running the organization, I hope. And uh, you're talking to a couple of fellows that get pretty passionate about putting together a couple of small game hunts a year. Oh, and, we'd love to have you do it. And you know, it, I did. We, we chatted briefly, but I guess here I'm throwing all you guys on the spot now on the air. But yeah, we kind of chat about it in, yeah, in, uh, in Alabama. And I was actually going to ask earlier if if because uh, you didn't name the organization in Alabama. I knew exactly who you were talking about. We yeah. were talking about it last week because this is going to come out the Monday. You guys will just have gotten back from North Carolina, or be heading home. We'll be heading home from it. That point. yeah, you'll be headed home from it when it's out. So I was thinking maybe we use a like I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't have to be the one? But I was thinking maybe use the the Chuck do Charles Bronson next year as a youth hunt. I it's mm, primo. 
it is to a degree, but I I personally think that Seminole Force would be better. Seminole Force would be better. Oh, because give up Seminole I know Forest. you don't, and I don't either. <laughs> but there's two there's two hunts we can have. We can host two. Well, you can always do Seminole Ranch. Now, and the reason I say Seminole no Forest way. is because Seminole Forest has their check station with a right. fire pit and all the other stuff. People can yeah, they have the gather. We right have there. A, yeah, we have yeah. a big area there to use. Picnic yeah. tables and stuff. It's you a can great camp area there. For uh, not during the hunt. You can. Well, you know, I, I we, will we, tell you we this. We could probably reach out and maybe get an exception for camping there. Well, yeah, we, I was going to say we could probably reach out. Oh, we can, I can make that happen more than likely. But when we do a youth event or a new hunter event, it's a weekend. Right. So the, the participants arrive by 4 o'clock on Friday. We have everybody fire their weapon to show that they can operate it and that it's accurate. And then we go over a safety meeting, have dinner, and everybody goes to bed, and then we hunt. Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, and then go home. So it's always three hunts. And, you know, we cordon off different areas or we have stand locations and everybody pulls a number. And so you never hunt the same location two times in a row. And um, that way everybody, nobody says, well, they saw more than I did because they were in a better stand. Right. Yeah. You know, so we don't want any of that. And, And really, we never get any of that from the kids or from the new adults. We get it from the seasoned hunters who are there with the kids. You know, you know. And oh, it doesn't look deary. Yeah, and I think you could you could really organize that in Seminole Forest because what's uh, I forget the biologist's name. Jean Marie. Jean Marie. But Marie, Jean, yeah. Miss Jean Marie is a super like she has always wanted Seminole Forest to be a real family oriented yeah. thing. And I, it's, I think it's if we not, came, it's to not her, a hard sell. Yeah, I would say I think if we came to Miss Jean Marie and said, hey we want to do kind of a family-oriented youth hunt event, I think she would like I could go to Greg that. Workman and just say, hey, Greg, we want to do this, and he'll just call Jimmy and say, you're doing this. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah, but I'd rather I'd rather it come from the bottom up, and she's fantastic. Yeah, no, Oh, she she's an amazing lady. Well, actually, if I call Greg, Greg would say, call her and talk to her. Yeah. yeah. But he says, I'm all, but he'd say, I'm all for it. Based on yeah. the way you're talking about it, though, it may be best for us to shoot for a weekend that isn't, a small game hunt weekend have our own weekend out there for those kids. Uh, I think you end up getting into some legislative issues and you'd have to go through the whole land use plan. Well, because we don't have an extended youth only small game season unless we, well, you could do it on the youth only duck hunting weekend, which is always the first weekend of February, which is usually a pretty slow time for most people. They're not, there's not a lot of small game hunters in the woods in February. Well, we, we usually, well, last year we did the, the youth duck hunt right. in Emerald Marsh mm-hmm. with DU. Yeah, DU and, and Future or uh, United Waterfowlers used to sponsor that quite a bit too. Yeah, Ten Can yeah, gets a bunch into of it as well. And Ten yeah. Can does, yeah. Regardless, if we could swing it to where they could have their own weekend, own run of the woods, that would be even better because there is only. Well, that could so be done. That could be done on some other places. Like that could probably be done at a place like uh, Caravan Ranch South. Yeah. Absolutely, and that's not even that far. That's out of the not way. that far out of the way. They've got a nice campground. Yeah, the um, south end. Once small game season starts, the roads are closed. You have to walk it, but we could get vehicle access. Absolutely. Well, sounds like we got. I like that as a plan motion. B, but I, I yeah. like I think I think Seminole Forest only because I'm thinking Seminole Forest because I, it's fantastic. It's plenty big enough. Oh yeah, and you're not even though you're going to have other folks come in there. When we, we we put forty people in, and we never bump into each other. No, you can do no. Gore's Landing too. Where yeah. Gore's Landing? Gore's Landing is mm-hmm. over by Fort McCoy, 
And it's one of those areas that during small game, it's walk-in only, and it just borders the river, borders the Oklahoma. Seminole Forest is nice because it offers so much more than just small game during small game. If you yeah. want to bring a fishing pole and sit there and fish, you can oh, yeah. do that too. Yeah, and I think we, got we the all stock pond out front catching release <laughs> only though. Oh yeah, don't yeah. let that. No, don't you let can, that pond you fool you. Catch fish in there. It, it, it's don't let that pond fool you. Yeah, it is. Listen, I've gone in there with worms. You'll get two or three bluegill on a worm. As soon as the other ones see you catch them and take them out of the water, they quit biting worms. Switch to crickets, you might get two or three more. That's it. If you're not the first one there and somebody else has caught them on them, they don't, they don't bite nothing. Mm-hmm. They're smart. <laughs> them, them fish bluegill. are fish. Yeah, they are Ivy League bluegill. I do think, <laughs> yeah. I would say I, I do think our, our, our best advantage to Seminole is that vast majority of us in this room know it. Yeah. And if you're going to try to take somebody somewhere that's new to hunting, it's a lot better to have people that know it. They're going to go. Oh, and that's fine. You know, I was also the When it comes setup. to those things, you know, that's. I would be there as a hunt master, but I wouldn't be the guy. I'd be the guy in camp making sure the dinners were cooked and that everything was taken care of. But you guys would be the volunteers taking out the hunters and making sure that they got out and, and did what they needed to do and go where they needed to go. But Seminole Forest is a place we've gone. Oh years when jordan and i were kids going out there well i said yeah I, I was 16 17 years old so you were 12 13 we were going yeah. when, when i could drive mm-hmm. you know and uh going out there and hunting squirrels and just having a good old time and now we've transferred transformed it into this you know we do our small game hunts out there now as adults and i take my six-year-old son out mm-hmm. there and a bunch of other there's Anybody that brings their kids, they go, and a lot of adult hunters, and it's just a dang good time, period. Yeah. there's The problem with ours is, is that it has a structure. So when we offer a youth event, it's a youth only that are hunting. When we offer a new adult event, there are no youth there. It's only youth adult, you know, young adults or new to adult hunters. Uh, I mean, because we don't, we just say 18 and up for the adult hunters. It's just they're new hunters that haven't been before. So we get a lot of middle-aged guys. We get a lot of young 20-somethings. We get a lot of young couples, husband and wives, who are both wanting to get into it together. Um, and the youth stuff, you know, it's it's a lot of granddads with their grandkids or uncles or dads or whatever. Occasionally we get a mom and a son, single mom, you know. But um, with our hunts, we have to have – whoever's running the hunt has to be Huntmaster certified. So we have very few Huntmasters who are Huntmaster certified right now. There's myself, there's Mike Elfenbein, there's Brad Lowry, there's a couple other guys. And it's hard to, to get those same guys to commit that much time every season to running all the hunts. When John was doing it, he was retired. He'd spent his whole life hunting. He lived, you know, 20 minutes from the property. Wasn't a problem for him. He would, and he scheduled all the hunts that met with his schedule. Right. Since he passed away, we're trying to scramble to find enough people to cover the dates that were convenient to him, but not to everybody else. We had to cancel the hunt last weekend because of the storm. We had to cancel the New Year's hunt because who the heck wants to go and camp out over New Year's weekend when you've got family? Hey, we're doing it. Doing stuff. Yeah. That's fine if you guys yeah. are doing it together, but to do it for a bunch of strangers that you don't know when you've yeah. already got plans with family and friends, it's different. You know, if, if we all got together and did it because that's what we wanted to do, that's fine. Yeah. But to then include a whole bunch of strangers that we don't know and teach them and forego our own, our own ex- experience, to impart that experience upon them, that's asking a lot of a lot of people. Right. You know, so it, it takes a, it takes a special kind of person to be a hunt master, 
to give up that time. How does yeah. one go about becoming Huntmaster certified in case somebody's interested? Um, you'd contact um, um, Tyler Allen at FWC. And um, it's uh, his email address is tyler.allen at myfwc.com. Contact him. Let him know that you want to become a Huntmaster certified Huntmaster. And he'll let you know when the next class is going to be. They, they usually do them either in Ocala at the youth camp or they do them up at Bo Turner. Um, and then you go through the certification. You take you sit for the test, and you're a Huntmaster. Yeah. I would say if you're in Central Florida, the, the Ocala camp's not even far. That's what the, I assume it's the 4-H camp? No, it's past the 4-H camp. Okay. It's it's on 314A. Okay. Or right, right, right where 314 a and 314 come through. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's okay. just past 314A yep. on the road. It's on Lake Eaton. Okay. So it is a yeah, weekend course? Far, then. Yeah, it's a weekend course. So you're giving up one weekend you can to get give certified? Up one weekend to get certified, and then you can Give up volunteer. a weekend and take kids out. You can volunteer as many weekends as you want. Yeah. Sounds like something I need to do. I think the funny thing is when uh, that guy that was talking about, he's like, can you guys hunt bears? And I was like, Nope. Uh, we had one season, but we won't get into that because you know it was a mess. That was a mess. So. It, it was, and and yeah. I I blame our former governor Scott. I mean he yeah. he screwed that up royally. You know, absolutely. And like I told him, he's like he was like, well, why it was a mess? I said, well, because in my personal opinion, you took what I don't remember how many bears did they want to harvest. 305. So 305. Actually, it was 325 is what they wanted yeah. to harvest. We killed 304. Yeah. They wanted to harvest 325. But what they did was they said, hey, if you want to kill a bear, pay $150 and get a tag. And bring it and to then, a public yeah. check station. Okay. Yeah. So, and so then I'll give you the odd, real history. I, I'm yeah. going to say at okay, least probably at least 500 people bought tags. Right. I, I can give you the history of how this all played out. So. I started working on getting the bear hunt open in 2010 and it took me five years to get it open five years ahead of schedule. Cause I was shooting for 2020 to get it open. We got it open ahead of schedule because of the fact that there had been so many bear human conflicts and so many attacks. And the last attack that we had before the bear hunt started was a 15 year old girl in the panhandle who was out walking her dog and she was mauled badly to the point of disfigurement. Ooh, right. So that kind of pushed public sentiment over the edge that we need a bear hunt, right? And for, for the sake of controlling it. So what myself and members of the hunting and land management staff did at FWC was we set up a basic hunt parameters. It was going to be very similar to the gator hunt where you applied for a license. If you were drawn, you would have the entirety of the deer season to kill your bear with whichever legal weapon you chose. And it would be for the region in which you were drawn, right? Public or private land didn't matter. And then the license cost would be what the license cost was. Well, the governor came in and said, we can make more money if we sell the license over the counter. And staff said, yes, we could, but it's marginal. It's not a big deal, right? We're not doing this for the money. We're doing this to control the bear population. He said, but we can make more money, and the economy was still rebounding at the time. It was 2014, 2015 when we started, you know, they came out with this, and the hunt happened in October 2015. So Governor Scott said, sell it over the counter, set local quotas, 
and figure out a way to keep track of it. So they set up the check stations. That was the kiss of death for us because all the check stations were public. They were known. And the anti-hunters set up camp on all of them waiting for us to come in with bears. And, of course, any of you guys who have ever done anything with photography know that you can make a photo look much worse than it actually is. Yep. And then between that and their ability to mobilize and get their message across through social media and the news because they're heavily embedded in all places in the state, even though it's a very minor amount of people, they're heavily embedded with news sources. So they were able to, in advance of the hunt, denigrate the hunters, denigrate the whole process, make it look evil. And then when things did not go, when, when we harvested so many bears so quickly, um, and the state had been saying, we may not even reach our quota, when we did in a day and a half, yeah. right? Um, actually, in one day. And the, the biggest problem was is that in the East Panhandle, they set the limit at 50, right? Or at 40. 40 for East Panhandle. They killed 96 in the first day. Because they were running off of numbers that they took in 2012, a, a data survey that they did in 2012 that was only conducted on the public lands. They didn't get into any of the private lands because they didn't have access. And the private lands held twice as many bears as the public lands did. And that's where they were harvested. These guys had been watching these things tear up their feeders for years. They knew where these bears were. They got in between where the bears were and the feeders, and they got them. All the nonsense about... We had two small bears, you know, a bunch of small bears being killed under size was nonsense. We had one bear that was 96 pounds. The limit was 100. He was warned and given his bear back because he was within, you know, a little fudge rule there. Yeah, because it's it's hard to look at a bear and say, right. well, that's a 100-pound bear. Especially if you the bear weighs in at 96 pounds right. and, and the, the legal weight the was legal 100 pounds. 100. It's like, but we did have one that was like just shy of 60 pounds that was clearly a cub. That bear was confiscated. That guy was heavily fined and had to go to court and lost his ability to hunt for a couple of years. Yeah, but that's also the one that they quickly ran around. The anti-hunters of course. talked yeah, about yeah, yeah. lactating cubs. Well, there are no lactating cubs, but they were talking about lactating sows, right? And that there would be all I'm these sorry. orphan yeah. cubs out in the woods. And they actually walked <coughs> lots of these tracts of woods looking for orphan cubs, and they never found any because there weren't any orphan cubs. The reason we held the hunt at the time that we did was because that all the cubs that were ava- were there would be be able to sustain themselves and forage for themselves on their own without their mother. That's why we held the hunt in October. They're not denning or anything like that at that point, right? Um, but you know, you you can you can give them all the logic and all the science in the world. They're not going to give up on a good argument. Just and because Chuck, Chuck and I sit on the tag, the bear tag, te- uh, technical advisory group. Yep. Technical assistance. Assistant. I'm sorry. Technical assistance group. And it is a little frustrating sometimes, and we'll, we'll we will message back and forth our frustrations with some of the questions that get posed, and some of the well, the questions are always leading because what they're doing is they're setting up, they're asking questions in order to set up something that they want to see happen. Yeah. That's completely ridiculous. I was even going to avoid that. Well, going back to the completely ridiculous, like it, there. Are, this is one of the things just in general drives me crazy about anything that's semi-political. There are all kinds of things that we can say in the sphere of emotional feeling 
that, well, this would be a way to solve the problem. Like, why don't we just increase their habitat? I'm like, have you been paying attention to the the million people a year that move here, every, or a million of people every three years that move here? Mm-hmm. You're just going to go out and buy resident land that could otherwise be purchased for residential construction, and that's going to be the number one purchaser, and you think you're going to restore that to to bear habitat. Now, they get around pretty good, and they will they can survive in an awful lot of conditions, but buying more habitat just isn't in the – it's at, just at not – prime real estate prices. It's just yeah. not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah. No, but the state's are, not going to pay that kind of money for that land. Right. Those are the things that get brought up. Or the whole idea, despite, I mean, how many times have they already demonstrated that, you know, the idea of relocation, trapping and relocating. Like, well, where are you going to relocate them? Because the whole state's already overpopulated except for that area. Well, it doesn't matter. They're North like Chaz. homing pigeons. If you take a bear out of its, out of its home core area, you can drop it 200 miles away. He's going to be back there in seven yeah. days with the the new rules that we've had in place since 2015, if you live in a high bear concentration area, you cannot keep your garbage cans out by the street. You have to have bear proof cans. You can only put them out the morning of the trash and then you bring them back in. You can't keep dog food or other pet foods out in the open in your yard anymore. They write you up for it. They give you a warning. If you do it again, then they fine you. So I, I live in one of those neighborhoods and what's a little bit frustrating about our back and forth with, Folks that are operating largely on a on an emotional and I don't see I'm not seeing this pejoratively. They're genuinely uninformed, right? And they think, well, bear-proof trash cans are the solution. If we, everybody had bear-proof trash cans, and what they don't appreciate is the olfactory power of a bear, and that you're not going to get a hundred percent compliance. So all of those folks that are hauling their bear-proof trash cans out there, and the bears do learn that they're going to be hard to get into. When and it happens every year, they come out of their torpor. It's about March, and also we got bears in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And you're right, man. If somebody's left their dog food out, it's you know they're into that. If somebody got a little bit early and got out, say at four or five in the morning, to drop the trash off on the way to the gym, by seven o'clock they're into there. But most of our neighborhood actually is pretty good about the compliance with the rules on that. But nonetheless, as they went and they had a big drive and they actually increased the number of folks with the bear-proof trash cans. And as a guy that was out walking, doing hike to hunt, you know, out early in the morning, I was seeing bears all over those things, of right? Of course you were. You know, because they're, they, they smell They it. have to they're learn how to, to get, get into it. Right. You know, the, the other problem is just like, You've got a screened-in porch area. You keep your blackstone out there. You make yourself breakfast in the morning. Mm. You wipe the grill down, but you don't actually clean it. There's still grease in the trap. Bears are coming right into the screened-in areas. Look at the guy who was out there feeding his dogs, and he's got a grill right behind him. That bear come right through the screen door after him and the dogs, and he had to fight him off with a with the love seat. I actually had that happen in my house where I had a screen house, mm-hmm. and you could see the bear walked in one side. <laughs> And, and then walked, walked out, out the, the other. other. Yeah. Right. yeah, when you're a bear, everything's a door. Yeah, <laughs> you're a bear. Yeah, you got to get my screen fixed. But you know, and I, I, I joked that if I if I if I want to see bears, all I have to do is put my trash out early in the spring, and I'm going to see bears. You'll see bears. You know, um, and we've had in my neighborhood, we've had the second and fourth largest bears that were ever killed in florida i've had them in my yard at one point or another yeah one that got eventually hit by a car and killed up in aliqua which was like 700 pounds actually the biggest one actually was might killed, have been the biggest no, it was the biggest one was killed at caps 
right now, it came off of to- a Bo Turner's property. It that was killed on US 19. Yeah, okay. So the US 19 all the way up near Tallahassee. That was the largest one. He was 750 something pounds. Right. And they just killed one a year or so ago mm-hmm. that was well into the sixes. Yes. And I had him, he, he was raiding trash out of my neighbor's garage because he forgot to put the, the door down. There was another one about the same size that was killed in a pipeline unit last year so, as well that was mm-hmm. the killing uh, that was getting under the tents the tents over in the primitive uh, camping we, area yep. Weems got a picture of one and Sorrento that is a absolute a, he's, stut he's, he's a, a unit son yeah, yeah there's there's a lot of slobs out there I've seen a bunch of them we had one um, that actually took a six point out of our hands in Ocala dragging it out and all of a sudden the deer got lighter and then it pulled backwards fellow who'd shot the deer it was the first buck he'd ever taken he'd been hunting ocala for years and he wasn't wasn't a serious hunter he mostly just came out there for the camaraderie and um but this was the first first buck that he'd ever shot on public land and it was a decent six point and um he was tickled and we went over there to go drag it out for him and you know as we're pulling it out the deer got lighter and then all of a sudden it pulled backwards and there was about a 450 pound black bear Big old boar that had just grabbed it from us and picked it up like he was a running back picking up a fumbled football and just hauling ass with it, right? And um, I got a picture of him standing over the deer. He went about maybe 100 yards or so, and we caught up to him and got a picture of him. And he picked it back up again and took off with it. And so we went back into camp and then came back out later that afternoon looking for it, for where he'd buried it, and uh, couldn't find it. And so um, Mr. Suggs was really dejected. I mean, he was heartbroken. We went out the next day, and we found that deer. And we didn't tell him about it. We went ahead and had it mounted for him and gave it to him at Christmas when he came back up for, for awesome. the Christmas hunt. And, I mean, he, awesome. he, a 63-year-old man crying his, his butt off because he got the deer that, after all, you know, we had right. to get him another cape for it because Bear messed it up pretty good. But uh, it all ended well, and, um, you know, it's just – it. That area over there, I had a stand not far from where he was hunting that every time I'd sit it, I'd see at least between five and seven bears every time. And at one point, I was up there archery hunting and had all seven of them underneath me and had to sit there until almost nine o'clock at night before I could get down to get out of my stand and get back to camp. They were that bad in there. And they haven't gotten any better. So in your opinion, what are our chances of having another bear hunt? Well, I think our, our chances are good. Um, it's not a, it's not a matter of will we have it. It's when will we have it. Right. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to get it done now, sooner than later. I think politically the time is right. The governor has been reelected. He can't run for a third term. Um, we have all of the commissioners who sit on FWC commission have stated publicly in commission meetings that if staff recommends a hunt, they will approve it. So since we have all the members of FWC's commission willing to approve a hunt, we just need staff to put it on the agenda and say, we recommend a hunt this time to control populations. You know, the the truth of the matter is, is that Florida's estimated bear population pre-Columbian was around 10 to 11,000 bears, 51 million acres in the state of Florida, uninhabited 10,000 to 11,000 bears. And that's breeding age bears, right? two years of age or older. When you take into account cubs and juveniles, 
it's much higher than that at that time. Our estimate in 2016, which we did the hair stanger study, we had over 10 million samples so that we could identify bears genetically. They estimated the breeding population at that time to be about 4,700 breeding population. When you count for the fact that you have um, an annual growth rate of 18% across the state on average, some areas being as high as 30%. That's even 18%. That's a huge That's huge. And that's, yeah. that's, that's even after mortality. It's 18% post-mortality. Okay? So bears being hit, bears being killed, bears being euthanized, um, bears being hunted or poached. Poached. Well, even during the hunting season right. and poached, okay? All of that, we still have an 18% statewide average annual increase in bear population. So you take in those numbers and all those cubs with a 98% survival rate on the cubs, right? Um, your, your population is growing exponentially. It was estimated in 2015 or 2017 that by 2026, we would have over 11,000 bears in the state of Florida. It's 2022. And we have not had a hunt in seven years. And our, our numbers now, our conflict numbers are back up to where they were pre-hunt. Our mortality, our vehicle mortalities are back up to exceeding where we were pre-hunt. The only thing that's down is, and only barely, no pun intended, is the um, the human conflict. And that's because there's a lot of people not reporting it. Because they've been coerced into not reporting it. It's a nice way of saying it. Yeah. Okay. So you look at that, and we only have approximately 19 million acres of uninhabited land, not all of which is primary. You have primary, secondary habitat, and tertiary habitat. Tertiary habitat is just suburban areas where the bears happen to wander around or use for connectivity. Secondary areas are areas where they'll feed and spend time, but they can't live in it. So primary areas where they can feed, breed, live, stay the whole time. You've only got about 7 million acres of primary habitat. So the other nine, well, 12 million acres is either secondary or tertiary. The majority of it is tertiary, right? That Florida corridor, stuff like that. And so there's interconnecting areas. And, and the, the landscape is so fragmented that you're never going to have good connectivity, not truly good connectivity. Or in a way that, that the bears can breed within their interpopulations. You know, we're starting to get it some up and down the panhandle. We're starting to get it a little bit from the Kissimmee Valley down into the Highlands population. And from the Highlands population into the, the Glades population is really, really hard. I mean, there's just not enough connectivity there because of the big lake. old river. Yeah. We've got the rivers and you got the lake. You've got the Caloosahatchee and the St. Lucie. And you've got the lake all the way around, which is the same thing with the cats. Now, the cats will swim it a lot faster than the bears will because the cats. They're more nocturnal. They're more stealthy. They get they actually air in neighborhoods, you know. Whereas the bears don't do that. Um, so what you know, we've talked about this. You and I have talked about it offline. That the the, the rivers are obviously a, a big problem, but then we've also got man made rivers and the fact that we got highways. Mm-hmm. Right, like I they'll cross the highways. The highways they have no problems crossing, which is why we have so many bears getting hit by road on the roads. Yeah, and why we have so many cats getting hit on the roads. 
but they'll cross the highways. The, the highways don't seem to bother them. They'll run across them. They just get it and go. And I can't tell you how many times I've watched them cross. 19, 17, 11. Um, I, I thought that when you hit, because I know they've put tags on them. They've hit, they had a bear come out of the, I think it was out of the, um, not the Everglades population. What's one just, the Highlands population. Highlands population. Came all the way up, hit I-4, wandered down I-4, and then went back south again. Never crossed I-4. Right. That one went all the way up into Green Swamp and came back. Yeah. So, but I thought... He that, basically went up 27. He actually went up the Kissimmee River. Yeah. The big... But the big I-75, I-4 corridors, I thought, do present a pretty sizable problem to the Bears. They can, but not everywhere. Okay. Um, 75 is high-fenced pretty much the entire length now until you get down to Sarasota County. Right. right, so we have we have to either go over or under, right? And you ain't going under in Florida. Right. But you're not your population, your human population, your human density is so high from Tampa, say Pasco County, South Pasco County, all the way down to Naples, that you're not getting any bears to the to the west of seventy five, really. Okay, you have the bears in the Chazowitzka region, yeah. which are are. Uh, mingling now with the Big Ben bears. Okay, so they're, are they? They're starting okay. to. Yeah, they're starting to. We're getting more and more bears coming all the way down from into Levy County. Uh, matter of fact, we the property that we do the youth hunts on, we've got two bears on there that have been shaking the the, the feeders. We've got them on camera shaking the feeders. So what Chuck's referring to is if you think about the the map of the state of Florida, that whole Big Bend area, say from. St. Mark's all the way down to, I mean, really. Crystal River. Crystal River. In fact, just a few years ago, you talked to the biologists, and they would say that is the only area that realistically should should have a fairly significant population of bears that didn't, but they, they figured it was just a matter of time. And I guess now it makes sense that they're coming down out of uh, Well, if you, if you talk to the lot. bear biologists, the way that they identify the Crystal River population – is basically from the cross Florida barge canal down to Home Assassin, right? So that population is pretty isolated because it's hard for them to cross that Florida barge canal. When They've you say got, Crystal River, you mean the, the Chazowitzka pop? We the Chaz- yeah, the, yeah, the, Chaz- okay. yeah, the Chazowitzka population. Thank you. Okay. So, yeah, the Chazowitzka population, which encompasses Home Assassin to Crystal River, okay, and the entire Chazowitzka basin. Um, there's not very many of them that are over in the Dunallen area, but there are some. And those cross over. It's hard for them to cross over into the Ocala population because the Ocala population is on the other side of 75, on the other side of 301, right? So that population intermingles with what you have here. It's all part of that Central Florida population. The Ocala population. Yeah, it's the big one, right? And it goes almost all the way up to Lake City, but then you get into the Osceola population. So that, that population there has been intermingling for quite some time because you've got Baker County, you've got Columbia County, you've got... You know, all, all those little counties over there, um, even Putnam and Volusia and was it St. John's County? Yeah, but there's you plenty know. of open air. There's plenty of, plenty of open plenty air. Of there, there's plenty of river corridor and creek bottoms for yeah. them to follow. You've got some bears in Green Swamp. Not a lot, but you've got a few, right? And those are coming down from Ocala. And they're sometimes they get into Tampa. We had one in 1998. They got into the dumpster that I, behind the, the apartment I was living in in Temple Terrace. And he'd come all the way down the Hillsborough River 
crossed under 75 using the river, using the riverbank, came all the way into Temple Terrace. He was maybe three miles from Bush Gardens when, when we found him, you know, and they trapped him and they got him out of there and they put him back in Green Swamp. Was he a young male? Yeah, he was about 150 pounds. So they're pushing range. They're pushing range. Yeah, big bears are pushing them out. They're Absolutely. Looking for females are just pushing range. That's what you know, a lot I've of got, do that. I've got bears on a feeder camera in Dade City, right up against Upper Hillsboro. You know, and they're on his hind legs, batting at the feeder. You know, and it's an area that we don't traditionally have bears, but every now and then we get them come through. And they're always young males that are reaching out to mm-hmm. expand their territory. I was going to say, we grew up in like. Uh, what's considered tangerine Mm -hmm. um but we never really had a lot of bears there as kids but here recently there's been like multiple mothers with cubs Mm -hmm. ranging out to tangerine yeah because it was like when we grew up it it was a a vastly rural area we gotta remember that the bear population in florida had dwindled down to a couple of thousand yeah right statewide Right. And the majority of them were either in Osceola or in the Panhandle. You know, I was, I've always seen bears in the Panhandle my whole life, and I've been hunting up there since I was five, six years old. So I've always seen bears in St. Mark's and Osceola and Spring Warrior in that area, the Big Bend area, the Nature Coast. There's always been bears there. Just, well, it's, it's tough territory to navigate. Right. It's thick. It's nasty. There's lots of bears there. They're just like Big Cypress and Picky and Strand. It's nasty and gnarly, and there's a ton of bears in there. But they're isolated. They were isolated populations. As they've expanded since we stopped the bear hunt in 1999, um, it has, that bear population has exploded. And we've, like I said, we're now getting the intermingling of the different populations so that the genetics are spreading out, and the bears are healthier, they're bigger, and you know they're, they're not experiencing the same thing the cats are experiencing where the DNA is of a very small sample. So you need that crossbreeding from one one population to another in order to ensure that they're healthy. And that's what we're getting. I mean, the, the, the bear story in Florida is a huge success story. It really is. And we're the only state that has a population over 1,000 that doesn't have a hunting season. Unless you count New Jersey when they got the right kind of governor. Right. Unless you count yeah, New Jersey. And New Jersey's say, like, riddled with bears. Right? Well, but even even <laughs> yeah. with the wrong governor, they still maintained. The legislature said we're still having the hunt, and we're going to have it on the on the federal lands. They just closed it on the state lands because the governor controlled the state lands. But right. on the federal lands, they continue to have the bear hunt. Yeah, but, but that that just kind of I don't know the, the whole. When I first started looking into bears, I didn't know diddly about them. And actually, it was Mike Elf when I was doing some work with BHA. He's like, "Why aren't you guys involved in this?" Right, and I started. And I read the entire bear management plan, all hundred twenty-two pages. <laughs> and man, it was a wealth of knowledge. But man, if you if you read that, and although I'm a hunter, I, at the time really wasn't even interested in bears. But I read that management plan that had input from everybody under the sun. So mm-hmm. there's no way anybody can say, well, that was a one-sided conversation. No. And I would encourage anybody to go find it online and and, and read it because you you. The success story is, it's fantastic. I mean, it's, bears, like, it's, it's like, it's, it's unlike any other in right. in the United States right now. And I, I found myself more from like an economic, just a guy thinks in terms of systems, like really kind of getting upset. Like this is nuts. Mm-hmm. 
We have got bears everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's a sustainable population. The amount of money that we are spending out of our conservation budget to deal with trap and kills and all those other things and, and some of the yeah, it's not sustainable. The, some when you consider the expense of the alternatives, like trying to neuter, euthanize, yeah. spay, and neuter. I mean, that works with wild horse populations and stuff, but they're clustered animals. Mm-hmm. And actually, it doesn't work with wild horse populations because if we're it getting did, overrun, yeah. But the the idea of new habitat, we already know that the trap and relocate absolutely will not work unless you happen to catch a mother with cubs because mm-hmm. the mother won't leave the cubs and the cubs won't survive the journey. Those are the only successful right. relocations that they have. And it depends on the mother because some mothers will try and travel with the cubs. Yeah, but notice it's all super small impact mm-hmm. and very expensive. Very expensive. The answer is hunting. On every level is hunting, and that will bring money into a conservation budget. Well, it's self-sustaining. The money that you raise off the license sales pays for the program it pays for the biologist if we were not to allocate it for garbage cans like we have been doing okay i, I was going to go into that earlier we talk about rick's got right. money because it was right. supposed to pay for the garbage cans and well and, they, it, and it did pay for it. all the money that we raised from the license sales was 100 percent put into the first year of garbage cans since we only had one hunt we didn't have more money the second year or the third year so the rest of that has been allocated through budget well that's why you can't get the cans right now I'm sorry. To, right. We're ki- Chuck and I are kidnapping so this now, conversation. Now, but before I, I was going to stop you there. Before we dive off into another hour's worth of bears, <clears throat> we we still need to hear about Rebel Yelp outfitters and, and game calls. But okay. before you do that, I, yeah. I want to hear I want to hear that that sexy owl hoot one more time. The sexy owl hoot, huh? Yeah. Right. I mean, that is the best owl hoot I've ever heard. In my right. life. I'm gonna I'm gonna move the microphone away a little bit so that it, it's not too cacophonous and you can actually yeah. hear it. Like it's outside. Now, what owl is that supposed to imitate? Because you hear them quite commonly. Barred owl. Barn owl. Barred yeah. owl. It's a barred owl. Yeah. B-A-R-E-D. Barred. Yeah. You, you hear them. It, it almost sounds like they're just arguing with each other in the tree. You get two of them going back. <laughs> oh, yeah. When they start go, when they start caterwauling back and forth. I mean, yeah. I love that. That that, that, that means it's, it's time, man. Things are moving. When the, when the owls are talking, <laughs> the deer are walking. And when they're going nuts in the spring, man, it's just that and the whippoorwills kicking off in the morning before the owls. Oh, yeah. It cracks me. I really need to get one of those off you and uh, and figure out how to use it. This is my last one right now. I got to make some more, but I'll leave it here for you if you want. So for the guys checking eyes, I mean, if you're going to leave it, we'll take it. But for the guys that are checking eyes, age, we were little kids and we'd be watching like old movies and they bring up Tarzan movies and whatnot. And in the in there in the middle of the day, going through Africa, supposedly. The bar dolls, a constant side effect about like from supposedly the jungles of Africa right. are filled <laughs> with bar dolls and screech owls yeah. and whole great horns. Yeah, and yeah. I, I remember like you know he's, he's getting a little older when you start getting out in the woods and be like, wait a minute, that that's a Tarzan sound. <laughs> right. It's you know, a bar doll. Your, your great horned owls are just the great horns basically just do that hoot that.
right? They don't they don't get real. Yeah. They don't do that caterwauling. Not yeah. like the barred owl. Uh, he's got his. Let me hear one of y'all's. No. no. <laughs> you get after it. You you're the best you're, at it. You're the, the hoot owl expert. Here. So. Yeah. It, it sounds, no, yours you sounds better outside. Your so. it. I've I've heard you. That's more like it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. It's pretty good. So, so it, it's guaranteed every time that it that call hold on, hold on. may not call the turkey, but it's guaranteed every time that call that you just threw out, we'll you're going to get a call back from. Now, it. I've also yeah. got a gobbler game, uh, gobbler to gobble, just slamming the truck door. Let me tell you this. Oh yeah, yeah. So <laughs> when they're so, hot, you can fart on a snare drum and they'll gobble. You know, <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever That's listened true. to the Bear Grease podcast, and Clay Newcomb talks about the relationship of a turkey hunter and how good an owl hoot he can do, mm-hmm. that that scenario doesn't match with Will. Oh, no, it goes out the window completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, don't, you don't have to be a good owl hooter to be a good turkey I, I, I am. I, well, no. That wasn't the, the, the relationship. Usually, well, the thing, his thing was, usually if you were good at an owl hoot, then you're a good turkey hunter. That's what I'm saying. Not necessarily because you're right. You can out hoot. Right. You're a good turkey hunter, but it, it tends to be a correlation. There. But my now buddy, listen, listen, listen. I am a great turkey hunter. I'm a terrible <laughs> turkey killer. All right. I was gonna say, I f- I feel like we are are great uh, owl callers because that was just something that Dad did when we were kids. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. If if we were deer hunting. And we were at night, and a, and a, a turkey or, or an owl hoot, turkey, yeah. yeah. But if if an owl made a hoot, Dad would just mess around and made that hoot at night. <coughs> yeah. There you go. The old crow call. Old crow call. Yes, sir. <coughs> Not gonna. Now lie, is I that a I'm rebel gonna... Yelp Outfitters call? Yep. Yeah, I just put this one in a. I had an old barrel sitting at the house and threw an insert in just to. Bring it with me for the heck of it. But again, it's just a plastic molded insert. I've got a bunch of molds at the house. I just pour them, pull them out, and pre cut the mylar reeds, stick them in there, and they're ready to go. They don't take much. They're inexpensive. I mean, realistically, when it comes to alcohols, or and crow calls for that matter, most anything will work just fine. Some of the best alcohols I've ever heard are the $7 inserts that from the Bass Pro Shop, cheap. Nine dollar call, right? You buy that nine dollar call, you pull the guts out of it, you drill the hole in the back out to a three eighths inch hole because the hole's too small, it's a quarter inch hole. Yeah, so you can't make it sound right. You drill it out to three eighths inch, you pull it out, you stick it in the rubber tube, but it does exactly the same thing as this. You see how big that hole is, yeah, right? So it's a three eighths inch hole. Most alcohols, the hole's too small, so you can't get it to scream and it wants to break on you when you try and get loud with it, but that allows more air through and you control that air with your hand. Now watch my grandmother make a crow call out of a blade of grass. I've done that. I've actually got... I make coot calls, too. That, <laughs> so, Lisa, I wish you'd brought the coot when call. When you showed up, Briar was extremely excited about getting like, one of your coot calls. Is there a coot call in there? No, there's not. <laughs> I, I, have, I have five at the house that I finished. I can, right. I can send one to you. But the, the coot call doubles as a as a, a wood duck call as well. So it'll make that, that sweet, sweet, sweet that the... 
oh, wood duck yeah. does. Right, the Drake wood duck whistle or zip, I call it. But um, and I modeled mine off the Haydell's call, the M eighty five. Yeah, I basically stole their design. Um, you got uh, that one? No, that one's got the metal reed. I use the the, the plastic mylar reed on it. Um, but the um, the coot call, I've actually made them out of cane, out of actual cane. Yeah. So take the cane, shave a piece of cane down to make the reed set, put a cork stopper in it, get it set just right, get the pitch up there on it. And um, that's how I learned how to make duck calls at first was just whittling cane. And yeah. making the reed is a real pain in the behind. Oh, I bet. Because <laughs> you got to get you got to cut it while it's green and then let it dry. Right, and it always wants to curl on you, and then you got to go back in and shave that edge. And if you shave it too short, it doesn't quack right. It's garbage. It's garbage. Yeah. You got to start over again, right? I was. That's actually how. Getting off into call making stuff here, but that's actually how. Um, Roberts, uh, Phil Roberts got his his start, because up until, up until then, your duck calls were multiple parts. What they call con, con, considered the Arkansas style or the Louisiana style duck call, which was actually developed in Arkansas, had a tone board, a reed, a stopper, an insert, a barrel, and a bell, right? So you had all these different parts and you had to tune it and get it set up. What Phil Robertson did was he got on a lathe and he made a J-frame. He turned the bell and the tone board all out of one piece, right? Turned it, put it on a, a bandsaw, cut out the J. You could then build all your stoppers the same size, build all your reeds the same size because everything was cut on a jig, and so you just production line it together, right? So you got a more consistent call. You didn't have to tune anything. Everything was already preset. You just slap them together. If it get wet, you take them apart, wipe them off, put them back together again. It sounds exactly the same. You don't have to be proficient at tuning a call. And so once you got to the Arkansas-style call made in North Monroe, Louisiana, that's where he made his money because he patented that design for a long time, right? If you look at the old Ots calls or um, some of the other old calls that are out there, they all still have all those different components to them, right? But nowadays, all the new style calls, all the big water calls, whether they're single read or double read or triple read, some of them are triple read, um, you know, it's just the length of the tone board, the size of the opening on the on the bell end, and whether you're running one, two, or three reeds, and, and how long are they. Buck Gardner makes a reed and a half call that's phenomenal. It's a spit tech. It doesn't stick. Even though it's cold, you can get it as wet as you want. Dunk it in the water. Blow through it in the backside, and it'll keep blowing. It'll keep quacking. It won't stick on you. Hmm. And, um, you know, so there, there's a lot of a lot of different variations to it, but nobody's reading that in the wheel. It's the same thing with these things. Right. Calls, you know. I was gonna say we had a. Uh, he says these things. It's a. Yeah. It's a diaphragm call. Yeah, diaphragm call. Yeah. Uh, in our uh, hundreds of a bygone era, was our what our first season, or yeah. near yeah. the near the end of the first season. Uh, what was his name? Dale P. Bordelon. Yeah, Dale P. Bordelon still makes a full cane call. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful call, and oh, it's yeah. a darn good sounding call. Yeah, yeah, and but the thing with Dale is. Dale P. Bordelon still does, not only does he make his cane call, he hunts out of a, a P. Rosie's carved himself, mm-hmm. 
and uh, he still hunts with a, a market error shotgun. Screw, screw your light bar. He's got a lantern. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He still hunts with a market error shotgun, mm-hmm. and he still use wooden carved decoys, mm-hmm. and he uses all the down from his ducks to make pillows as well. Yeah. And the only seasons he needs are salt and pepper. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he is the podcast that we did with him. He was genuine. Like it was hard to understand him. He is. Yeah, he's full Cajun. Yeah. Oh yeah. Full yeah. Cajun. Yeah. If, if Great you know guy. Who, though. If you know who Justin Wilson is, he's full bleed. Yeah. You've ever heard of Justin Wilson? Justin. That's right. Justin. I guarantee. Guarantee. <laughs> I had COVID during that podcast. Yeah, I did. Uh, That's probably why I was at my house. Yeah, we we were all separated. Yeah. yeah. So I can tell you how Rebel Yelp got started. So <clears throat> I was a member of the National Wild Turkey Federation's Tampa chapter from its inception in 1988, and I started turkey hunting when I was about nine. Uh, my dad had been invited to take us up to a property in Alabama. There was a catastrophe adjuster he did work with that had a big lease up there. And he also owned some properties, had a beautiful camp. His brother-in-law was Ben Rogers Lee. And of course, Ben Rogers Lee's best buddy is Eddie Salter. So I met these guys when I was nine years old. Eddie gave me a mouth call at the stack double. Ben gave me a world champion box call and they taught me how to, to use them. And they used to tease me mercilessly at deer camp. I, Ben loved to play practical jokes. He gave me a gas siphon one time and told me it was a deer grunt and because uh, it had a little checked ball valve in it. So if you blew it just right, it would grunt, right? And I take this thing. I'm 12 years old. I take this back in the stand, and every deer in the woods is blowing at me because I smell like gasoline, right? <laughs> right? And, uh, and he also told me, he said, fill your pockets full of rocks, and if you see a deer, you just chuck the rocks out because they'll think it's acorns dropping and they'll come in. So I'm up here smelling of gas, blowing on this siphon, and chucking rocks out of my pocket. And, of course, I don't see a damn thing, and I'm hearing deer blow everywhere. And uh, my dad and I come back in, and Ben's looking at me. He says, well, did you see anything? I said, I didn't see anything. I heard deer blowing all morning. He's laughing his butt off, right? So these guys were the, the ones who kind of influenced me and taught me how to do it. So being involved with NWTF, and we always had calls coming in from different manufacturers. And one day I was like, you know, I've got a pot call on my hand, and I'm pretty good at using a pot call. And I'm like, I wonder what the inside of this thing looks like. So I took one apart. I'm like, geez, I can make this. This is nothing. I can make this myself. So I started researching, and I found a company that would sell me surfaces, you know, glass, slate, uh, aluminum, copper, whatever. And um, I bought myself a bench lathe. And I taught myself how to turn wood. I've been working with wood since I was a kid anyway, so it wasn't that big a deal. Got an inexpensive set of knives and a little bench model. And I started buying some stabilized wood. And then eventually, they went from a very ugly, rudimentary style call to, you know, the finished products that I have now. And I did the same thing with the mouth calls. You know, I'm looking at these things. I'm like, these things are all mass produced in China for the most part, right? And then I start seeing guys, well, we've got our own press and we make our own. And I'm like, well, being embedded now with the hunting industry for so many years and having been sponsored by some pretty big companies, I was able to, you know, talk to some of the guys who had these call companies. And I, I became friends with Will Primos. And I talked to him and I asked him, I said, you know, what, what is it about your mouth calls? Why are they, why are they pro series versus, you know, just whatever everybody else is selling? He said, well, the latex thicker. The latex is thicker, so it'll last longer. It takes more air, more control to blow it. I'm like, 
well, why do you want it thicker? He said, well, it lasts longer and people will buy it because it's lasting them. I'm like, okay. Because it says pro. Because it says pro. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if it's not that expensive to make these things, I'd rather go lighter so I use less air, get less mouth fatigue. So I started going with thinner latex and making my own bottle press. I went and I found a guy who, you know, the same guy that I get all my surfaces from also sells all the supplies to me for my calls, frames, tape, latex. And when he first started, he was only making three types of calls. And I started, you know, making these and starting with different cuts and whatnot and started sharing. So now he makes all the same calls that I make and even more. And, and he's actually copied some of the ones, that, like this one right here that I'm using. He's now making this exactly the same as I make it. So you can get it from Rebel Yelp or you can get it from him, but I'm not going to say who he is. Yeah, I'd rather, <laughs> get it from, yeah, I'd rather get it from Rebel Yelp. Right. But, you know, I, none of us were reinventing the wheel. Like I said, it's, it's latex stretched across an aluminum frame or HS strut Hunter Specialties uses plastic frames. I can't stand them. They don't bend to your mouth. The stuff with domes on it is nonsense. You just want latex, an aluminum frame, and some good quality tape that doesn't come apart when it gets wet, and that will seal to your mouth but not be real stiff. So if you notice the when you picked them up, you feel how malleable yeah. that oh yeah that tape Absolutely. is. It's soft, but it's still durable enough that you can keep it in your mouth all day and it's not going to come apart on you. You mean to tell me the plastic dome doesn't make it louder and better? No, it just keeps idiots from gagging on it. That's all it does. <laughs> so our, so I, uh, our, yeah. our soon-to-be Congressman Woodham, <laughs> he he can't blow a mouth call. He can't blow a mouth call. Not so, so one thing I told Briar when he said he can't blow a mouth call is that you sell these, right, with the tape on them. Mm-hmm. But what I've told Briar previous to him having tried a mouth call is that this mouth call you sell right here mm-hmm. is for everybody, yeah. correct? But this tape may not fit Briar's mouth properly. Correct. That's a so, medium frame tape. Yep. So so Briar can actually, or anybody, can actually trim this tape. Yes. To cut their mouth properly, mm-hmm. to where you can get the proper amount of air across it. Right. To make the right seal. Exactly. Right. Because if the tape's too big, if you've got a small palate. And the tape's yeah. too big, yeah. then your your tongue's sitting there pressing up against it. You can't get it to do what you want to do. It feels uncomfortable. It's unnatural, and you end up making god awful noises. But if it fits you properly and you can get a good seal, what I always tell everybody is when you first put a call in your mouth, you want to get it pressed up against the roof, but don't get it way back. You want that frame to touch the back of your teeth, right? Just touch okay. the back of your teeth, right? All right. So you can see. That so, it's pressed right there, right up against my eye teeth. Yeah. Right up against my canines. Now, I will change so, the position. So, so do, you, do you, for for people that can't see, do you want the front of the frame to touch the back of your teeth or to sit on the top of the back of your teeth? No, you want to touch the back of your teeth close to your gum line. Okay. Okay? Okay. Just for, for fitting to begin yeah. with, okay? So if you've never blown a diaphragm call, get it in your mouth. Add pressure to your tongue and put air between your tongue and the diaphragm until you can get a solid tone, right? Once you've got that solid tone, now you're going to drop your tongue, and that gives you your yelp. So when you hear that lilt on the end, what I'm doing is I'm dropping my tongue and popping it right back up. So it gives it that pop. 
and makes it sound like a hen instead of just a flat yelp. You'll hear a lot of guys just go, <laughs> right? They squeal it. They're, they're loud. They have no control. You want to flutter that tongue, just pop it just a little bit. If you allow your tongue to control the air pressure, you don't have to put that much air pressure on it and still get, you can get a real soft yelp. Now this call that hmm. you have in your mouth is mm-hmm. yellow. This and is the got, king it, cotton call. Oh, so it's almost it's got like a W shape. That's called a bat wing. Okay. That's a bat wing cut. This is this particular call is called the king cotton. So I make um, a triple inverted V, which is the stainless. I make a blue cutter, which is my Bonnie Blue. Then the ones that I think you guys took almost all but one of, the green and pink ones, that's um, the watermelon crawl. It's basically a split bat wing. Um, there's this pink one here that is a combo cut. So it's part bat wing, part um, inverted V with a almost a, like a quarter moon notch out of the side of it. So that's a combo cut. Um, then there's this green one right here. This is very similar to the watermelon crawl, but not quite as deep a cut on the split bat wing. I've got this one here. This is the Viper. So it's a diamond cut, a heavy diamond cut. And then I also make, which I don't have with me, um, a ghost cut. And So what do the different cuts do? So the, the more cuts you put into it, uh, the raspier it gets, right? So like something like this, this half moon cutter, right, which just has one single cut. It's a, all, my, all my calls are three. Three reeds, right? They're three latex reeds, and you've got this this one little half moon cut here. So this will key key, it'll cut, it'll yelp, but it's not real raspy. <laughs> kind of a young bird. Let's hear the key key out of it though. Give me a second. This is a brand new call, so it's <laughs> yeah, a little work. No, you're good. Putting him in the <laughs> He's trying to get. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Right. So you're trying to get that to fit to your so, mouth. So, right? well, what I'm doing yeah. actually is I can make pretty much any call kiki. It's all about how you're you're whistling the call. You want to get the air through the thinnest part of the call to where you're only affecting the top read. Yeah. yeah. Right. So what I'm actually doing is I'm turning the call in my mouth sideways. I'm actually whistling it right through the corner of the frame. Okay. So so correct me. If, go ahead. <laughs> I see. So correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but a kiki would be like if a turkey is essentially like a hen is essentially lost. Not necessarily. No. So a kiki, you'll hear, you'll hear young hens kiki a lot. It's kind of like being a juvenile when their voice is breaking. So a lot of times they'll kiki and then yelp. <laughs> hear how that. That yelp is high pitched yeah. on the end. It's almost it's almost like the voice is cracking. Yeah. So, but are are they trying to find the other hens in there? Yeah. Well, it's kind of a locator call. It's okay. like, hey, I'm I'm here. I'm by myself. 
Um, or it could be content. Now, a lot of times you'll also hear a kiki with um, with a purr, right? <laughs> Little purr putt and kiki. I've heard mature hens do that plenty of times, especially when they're happy, they're feeding, they don't feel safe and comfortable. Um, you know, you're cutting, you're yelping, you're, you're, you're long yelps, loud, long yelps. That's a, that's a, a lost hen call, right? She's by herself. She's trying to find the, the, the rest of the flock. But when you're talking about just a regular content yelp, they can be super, super soft. Times they'll get louder. One of the things I love to do when I'm yelping is go from a soft yelp to a louder yelp and then back down to a soft yelp. That's that hen that's coming through the woods. She's looking. She's heard the flock. Or she's heard a gobbler and she's looking, trying to get him to come or get close to him, and he'll get him to fire off again. Yeah. So you, the calls you're just doing that kind of, and you sometimes you hear when there's a little bit of desperation in it. Mm-hmm. I had a flock of turkeys come through, sitting in a stand, and then from behind me there was one turkey just, you know, giving that, that yep yep and, and yep 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 yep, and you could mm-hmm. tell it was like you know where, and moving back and forth, moving back and forth, mm-hmm. and I saw, and actually that's when I saw the big flock come through. I was like. Somebody is lost and look, looking for, but they weren't calling back to her, right? And then, uh, yeah, you're getting there. So now all of a sudden, I all of a sudden, <laughs> as we're going, all of a sudden I heard something very fast break through the woods because it, was, it wasn't very far behind me and I actually glimpsed her a little bit moving. But I don't know if it was a bobcat or a coyote. But you heard something quickly move through the woods, and then you heard a big smashing of feathers, and uh, and uh, and like a quick, you know, yeah. just, and I was like, "Yep, something got ate. Something got ate. She got got gone." Yeah, that 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 cutting cluck with the with the the desperation yelp when they you get them excited. I found this to be especially when I get a boss hen that's in the area. And I know she's got a gobbler with her, but they're hung up and they won't come. I can't get him to move. I can get her mad enough to come in. If I can get her to do that cut and yelp where she's getting excited, and she, she'll she come right in, man. You'll, you'll hear it gets closer and closer. Yeah. They're going to come, and, and they'll drag that, that gobbler right in with them. But for the most part, I do very little loud calling. I do some soft purrs and yelps. I love to kiki and whine because it'll, it puts everything at ease. And a lot of times if you, you do that, gobblers will come in silent. But they get close enough, and they can't see you. They'll hammer off, and then you'll know. They'll give you just enough time to get ready for them. Yeah. So, so I got a question for you. Mm-hmm. I was hunting Easterns in Georgia, 
and I was set up in some privy hedge on uh, on the edge of a young, uh, like, pecan orchard. I mean, it was real young. And uh, I had hens where I knew we had, we had seen the gobbler come down, watch where it went, and we knew where he was going to come to. And I set up in this privy hedge, and I had called, and the hens had come. I mean, I had hens within two yards of me. Mm-hmm. Just, they just didn't know I was there, but I was calling, and they were coming to me to my calling. But the gobbler stayed at like 60, 60 70 yards. Yeah, he yeah. stayed at like 60, 70 yards. Like, what What do you do at that point to get that gobbler to come in? Well, there's one of two things. You either let them walk off and you reposition, or if before the hens get on top of you, if you're seeing that he's hanging up, I like to either Jake yelp at him, which is like a real deep yelp, right? Kind of like a yonk yonk, right? Make him think that there's competition there. He'll come in to, to spot or Jake gobble at him, right? And if you've got a fan, put that fan out. You know, fan him and hit him with a Jake gobble. A lot of times he'll break where he's so at and come right to I, you. I feel like that was our problems. We had had we had, had a Jake, we'd had a fan and stuff, and then as soon as we seen him hit, we had abandoned decoys and just ran straight to him. And I feel like had we not abandoned our fan and stuff, we probably would have had a better chance at him. You might have. Um, you know, I, I seldom use decoys while I'm hunting, even on private land. Most of the time, I set up and I call and I let the birds come to look for me. Because especially when you're hunting field edges or you're hunting open, you know, roads that they can see down a long way, um, unless it's a mature, dominant mature bird, they're not going to come running in. What you see on television, that seldom happens because we, we're hunting a lot of two-year-olds. That's only what they want you to see on television. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it, when you're hunting public land, you're hunting a lot of year-and-a-half, two-and-a-half-year-old birds, right? Satellite birds. Mature birds are hand up. They're not going to come in. You'll get them later in the season when they're starting to look for receptive hens because they've bred everything else. But early in the season when everybody's concentrating, got to get out there, go and kill a bird – what you're shooting is you're shooting satellite birds. You're shooting young birds that have not getting the chance to breed, so they're going to come running in. But in certain areas, you get them to where they've gotten their butts kicked so many times, they're very cautious about coming in. So Will and I, <laughs> I put Will on a, we were hunting some private land. <clears throat> Chad has special access for. The special property. And uh, this is definitely the cock of the walk, so to speak. But man, we had uh, this. Tell you talking about a confident bird. Will Will had hens coming in and standing on his feet, right? We had every bird in the neighborhood coming in, but it was across a little bit of a water course. And this feller, I mean, we tried being aggressive. We tried shutting up for a while, and he would, man, he would answer everything. Mm-hmm. We started. We weren't even no calls, no other. We just started going. And man, he would scream back at us, put a decoy up there. He he was just like, ladies. Didn't matter. Yeah. Ladies, I'm over here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, there's there's always that bird, you know. He's he is the stud bull and he doesn't care. It's when you hear him gobble and you get him to free gobble and he doesn't get any closer, and the next time you hear him, he's further away. He's already told you, bitch, I'm here. And if you're coming, come on. 
That was his boy. Because, man, he didn't care. He, he would I, just, I don't chase. I don't even chase my whiskey, so come on. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of funny because we could see him clear as day. Yeah. But uh, oh, he, did we had he was hung up in a feller's backyard and we just couldn't get to him. When it when it comes to turkey hunting, I I am I am I truly believe I am cursed. <clears throat> I had uh, last week of the season. I had these two gentlemen <coughs> over at Dexter Mary Farms. I had two permits for Dexter Mary Farms A for the last hunt of the season over there. It's full week, and I had several birds that I had scouted out and knew where they were, and um, I also had a zone B permit. So I took one of the fellows and I put him on the big dove field up front, right? And I said, these birds are roosted back over here in the cypress head. Don't call a whole lot. Just set out that submissive hen. They will see it from the tree. Don't use a flashlight going in. I'm going to set you right here. I'm going to take the other fellow back to this backfield where there's an even bigger bird. But since he paid for the whole hunt, that's the one who's going to get the shot at the big <laughs> yeah. bird, right? So I took him back there and we got in and set up almost underneath this gobbler and didn't say a word and man first light hit he flew out hit the ground about 60 yards he looked back looked at the decoys and the hens came from across the road and flew to him and that was all she wrote and we played cat and mouse with him for six days straight i finally said heck with this we're going over to zone b and i took him over there and i'd seen this this you know good three-year-old coming into this field every morning about nine o'clock Right up against the road. Everybody drove past it because they're like, oh, you go set up on him. He won't call. He won't come. He won't do nothing. We set up in the corner. I said, this person to come in sneaky. I said, so you better be ready. He's going to come out from right over here in this corner. So we set up. And the fellow that I'm hunting with, God bless him, he's half deaf and mostly blind. He thought that the bird was going to come out right next to him in the corner. And I'm talking about within a 40-yard circle of the corner. This bird came out low where all you could see was the top of his head coming through the grass. The grass ain't but eight inches tall, but he's this turkey is belly crawling into the field. And I said, gobbler's in the field. He's like, where? I said, right there to your right, 35 yards. I said, you need to shoot him. He's like, I can't see him. I'm like, he's right there. And I kind of raised my hand and just kind of point like that. Well, this guy's looking 90 degrees to the right instead of looking, you know, 45 degrees to his right. And he says, I'm just going to shift. I said, don't move. He says, no, I'm going to shift. And he does like just Done. a little bit. And that bird picked his head up and ran right back out. And I said, well, he's gone. He's like, I never saw him. I'm like, I'm telling you, he was right there. He was right in your wheelhouse. You could have smoked this bird. Uh, the bigger one that we chased for six days would always circle around us. We would see him at a distance. And then he would stand in the middle of the road. But he was never in the same spot in the road two days in a row. He had about a 300-yard strip there that he would go and stand at different locations. It didn't matter where we set up. And even if I didn't call at all, didn't use a decoy. He, If the hens came down one way, he would gobble and go the opposite direction. If you got in between them, he would gobble and the hens would go around you. I could never keep the hens away from him. It was just He was just that tough. To, and he was right at the back of some horse farms over there. That I'm, I'm gonna kill him this year. If we get the permit, I'm gonna kill him this year. I know right what tree he's at. But I like that phrase. I don't even chase my whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about Rebel Yelp is, I started this company first as an outfitter and then as a call maker. So my idea was because growing up turkey hunting with a couple of legends and learning from them, I I got really good at it really quick. 
I mean, my spring break in high school and junior high basically was I got up every morning because I grew up in Odessa. It was just full of turkeys. I get up before daylight, ride my bike out to woods, go set up in a little grass blind or palmetto blind, shoot a bird or two, go back home, have lunch. Right. And did this every day for a week, every spring. <laughs> you know, it was not a big deal to, to kill 12 to 14 birds a year. And I didn't know anything about season bag limits or anything like that. I was a kid. My dad didn't turkey hunt. So I just did it on my own. Me and my buddy Paul, who lived down the street from me, we'd both go and just, you know, and we didn't even put a dent in the turkey population where we were at. I've still got a picture on my desk where there's. 35 hens and 16 gobblers all standing underneath one oak tree, right? And that's property I got to hunt with stuff like that. So my idea was in in the early 90s, hunting started to become a business. I started losing properties because the leases, they became leases. The ranches that I had been on started to become leases. Guys were starting to pay big money to go to them. So I had a few places I could go and run hunts that they didn't charge me anything. And so I, I charged $200 for a turkey hunt, an Osceola turkey hunt. Sold. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and for an extra 25 bucks, I'd videotape it on VHS. <laughs> right. I had a giant camera that I put a camo tape and everything. Oh, man. I fill up every season. And yeah. And, and you know, I was going out and you know, selling these hunts and having a good time. And I just enjoyed watching the birds flop. Right. And a landowner wasn't charging me anything. And I was making some cash in my pocket. And then, you know, Late '90s, it really started getting expensive. We lost the piece of property that we used to turkey hunt on down in Okeechobee to a professional bass fisherman that owns a marina down there. We asked him if we could be part of the lease, and he said no, even if we could afford it, which of course we couldn't. Um, so I started realizing that all of the good turkey hunting was starting to get taken up by these rich guys, and I wanted the average Joe to be able to have the same experience that the rich guys did, but play, pay a blue collar price. Right. So even today, I mean, I'm still probably cheaper than anybody around the state. And I mean, I offer private land hunts and they're pricey, but you're going to get food and lodging. You're going to get the full experience. You're going to get history lesson. You're going to get a whole lot more than just getting put in a turkey blind and somebody call a bird in for you. My, pri- my public land hunts, though, I-, I charge by the day. My success rate's in the high 90s, high 90% on public land. And most of the time, it's not, are you going to kill a bird? It's which bird are you going to kill? You know. But I've been doing it for so long that I know these areas. I know where the birds are going to be. It doesn't take a whole lot of scouting on my part anymore because birds are creatures of habit. You know, flock stays in the same area unless the terrain changes dramatically. So it's just gotten to the point where you know, with a little bit of adjustment every season, I'm right back on them. I'm in the thick of things. And I, I got repeat customers, and, and the business has been around for, you know, 30 years now. And I've got the same guys coming back year after year, and their grandkids are coming, you know. It's, so it's these, are guys, these are guys, are they? Are you hunting open areas, or you, you got guys that are putting in for certain quota hunts? We're doing all of it. I mean, I've got guys who put in for quota hunts. Every year I get some new hunters who've never hunted with me before, right? And we, I tell them, look, if you've never applied before, your chances of getting drawn are slim to none, Right. We, use, we try and use some of the special opportunity hunts for those guys if they only got one year to do it. I tell them, look, you want to do a public land hunt? This is what it's going to cost you in application fees. And then if you get drawn, this is what it's going to cost. And then my daily fee. 
I said, it's almost as expensive as a high-dollar hunt, but you're going to get to hunt more. And if we get done early, I'll throw in a hog hunt. I'll take you someplace and go let you kill pigs, or I'll take you someplace and go fishing. You know, But we block off these number of days, and this is what you go and do. Those guys who do get drawn, they come in for their hunts. We usually don't. You know, they can kill. I don't charge by the bird. I just charge by the day. Right? So there's no trophy fees or anything like that on the public land hunts. So you... On the public land hunts, you're essentially charging to call. I'm charging them to call. I'm charging them for my knowledge of where the birds are and how they move. And I'm putting them in the best opportunity possible for them to kill a bird while they're here. Okay. Right? I'm not selling the bird. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't sell the bird on a you're public You're selling land your hunt. skills. I'm selling my skills. Even yeah. on the private land hunts, I'm selling my skills. Now, if you want to go and call for yourself on the private land hunt, I'll do that. I'll point you and I'll say... This is the property. You got your Onyx map. This is the size of the piece that you're going to hunt today. Here and here and here are where the birds are roosting. I would hunt this particular area. This is where you need to set up. The birds will be here at this particular time. Even if you can't call, your chances of killing a bird are pretty darn high. Right? Well, they're just paying you for land access. They're paying me for land. Yeah, but, but, and for the stay and for the food because I cook for them and they have a house to stay in and everything else. You know, and I, but most of them opt to hunt with me, you know, and, I get a lot of guys who just want to kill their Osceola. They don't care what they kill. Then I get other guys who want to kill a stud and will pass up birds. Right. And I get a lot of, like I said, first time hunters who come like last year, I had these two brothers from Wisconsin. One of them didn't care about hunting. He was a hundred percent deaf. Right. And, and even with the hand signs, he kind of blind too. He really couldn't see much. It's kind of like Briar. The other brother, the other brother was about now, yeah. 60% deaf. And he was the one who really wanted to kill a bird. So they did not draw anything. And so we went to Three Lakes for the opener. And Three Lakes oh. had the biggest number of hunters I've ever seen in Three Lakes. On the Canoe Creek side, there was 120 guys in Canoe Creek in the first day. Right? You, could, you could walk across. We got in before everybody else. We were like the fifth people through the gate. And I've got an SUV permit because my knees are bad, right? So I was able to drive the closed road and get all the way down on the north side of the lake on the fence line. So we're hunting. We set up down there. We'd put a bird to bed the night before. We're sitting there. We got hogs feeding around us. We got the decoy out. 20 minutes before daylight, here comes two e-bikes. And I'm like, hey, I'm shine them off. Right. So I, they, they go about maybe 100 yards and sit down. Then two more guys on another set of e-bikes come in. And I'm like, these things are the bane of my existence. I can't stand them anymore. I can't get away from these people, right? But we worked it, worked it, worked it, and I was finally able to get him on a bird the last morning he was there, and um, he completely screwed the pooch. Completely screwed the pooch. And I, we, he stayed for the afternoon, and we got him the bird in the afternoon. But in the morning, you know, i got this bird goblin. I can't see him. He's like, I can see him. I'm like, well, where is he? He's like, he's right at the edge of this field. I'm like, well, on the right side, straight across from you, where? He's like, he's around the back side of this palmetto. So I'm thinking he's to the right. I said, well, don't move. And he's like, can I borrow your binoculars? I'm like, yeah. So he picks up the binoculars, and I see where he's looking, and I pick mine up, and the bird sees, because he's doing this. You know, he's going back and forth with the binoculars. Bobbing and weaving. Bobbing and weaving. And I, the bird sees him. I see the bird stretch his neck up, and I'm like, oh, this is over with. And so he's like, what happened? I said, bird saw you. 
Like, Can't be. He's 100 yards away. It's like all day. That bird, that bird was 60 yards, right? Oh, yeah. All I, day. Yeah, and I said, no, he saw you in a heartbeat. I said, look, we're just going to sit here until it gets dark. We're going to walk out. With no lights. Once we get about 100 yards away from where we're at, we can turn the lights on. And we'll get back to the truck. We can be back here in the morning. We killed him the next. You know, actually, we'll be back here this. this uh, yeah, we, we were back the next morning. Didn't get him in the morning. We stayed till the afternoon. He came in the afternoon. And he kind of just walked through the same area, and we got him at 35 yards. And it was a nice bird, double double beer bird, a big old bird. But um, that was that was a tough hunt because, you know, you can't communicate with these guys. They're sitting right next to you, and they can't hear you. Even with the Walker's game ears on, they couldn't hear you. Ooh. Now, I want to say I think it was you that we did a podcast with that you were telling us uh, somebody killed that you were hunting with killed a bird that had a massive beard on it. Oh yeah. 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 The state record length beard. Yeah. 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 That was a 19 and eighth inch beard. Good yeah. Lord. Good. Night. Yeah. That's the largest Eastern ever killed in Florida. Longest beard ever killed in Florida. Second largest, longest beard Eastern in the country. That's insane. Yeah. That was up in Mayo. Now that, now they typically don't get that long because of, no. Like they shear off. And, yeah, well, they just shear off. Shear I mean, they, they step yeah. on them. The terrain here is kind of rough. You know, it's not as bad as it is in the mountains, but they, they shear them off. Well, before we dive way too far deep yeah. into the turkey, we are we are two and, and a half put, hours into yeah, this. We put so. Chuck home at midnight. That's right. <clears throat> uh, you guys want to dive into the tip of the week? Yeah, I got no. one. <laughs> just the tip yeah just the tip what do you got i got with? one i'm gonna say uh man don't be afraid to uh dive into it man if uh turkey season's coming up go ahead and start doing your research uh start scouting find your birds like chuck says when uh, there's a lot of areas he knows where his his birds are gonna be and they're gonna roost and everything like that so if you're going to start getting into it, get into it now. Dive into it now. Start scouting your birds. Figure out where your birds are going to be and everything. Uh, I'll, and when, I'll tell you this much. If you're going to get into it now, remember that gobblers will change their pattern come spring. right? So where you find them in the fall, you're not going to find them in the spring. But what you want to concentrate on is open road beds, open sandy bottoms, where they can strut zones, basically, yeah. that are close to... to both roosting and nesting areas. So if you can find a burnt field that was burnt during the winter, you know, or um, an overgrown field edge that's mostly grass that's close to a swamp, um, anything like that, a good little transition area, and pretty much any of the WMAs in Central Florida hold good turkey populations. I don't care if it's... So start finding your strut zones now. Start finding your strut zones now. You can do some aerial scouting from maps. And then get on the ground and go and look for those spots. And, you know, starting around January, the gobblers are going to be bachelored up and they're going to be close to where they're going to be come spring. And uh, if you're going to get in your strut zones, get yourself some rubby oak calls. Absolutely. So I'm going to demonstrate my turkey hunting prowess right now. (laughs) Not turkey killing, but turkey hunting. All right. Uh, I would say you're better off to uh, not call at all and you are to call too much. Every time a turkey gobbles, mm-hmm. he's not gobbling to figure out where you're at. Once you call once, he knows where you are. Yes, he does. When he gobbles, he knows where you're at. He's gobbling to call you to him, 
And every time he gobbles, he you you take the chance that he's bringing another hen to him. Mm-hmm. And if he finds that hen before he finds you, you're out of luck. Yep. So yeah, don't worry about educating birds. They're vocal animals. You yeah. cannot educate a turkey. All right. I don't care what anybody tells you. That's nonsense. But you can call too much and create a situation where the bird knows it's not natural. Right? These birds are the least talkative birds of all the subspecies in the country. Our Osceolas are the most tight-lipped that you'll find anywhere. And I've hunted birds from the northwest all the way across the United States. But they're the hardest here. And the only thing that's hard, it's almost as hard, is a public land bird, in you know, eastern bird in the southeast especially in Georgia and Alabama. Those birds can be real tough as well because because of the pressure. But pressure is what causes them not to talk very much. So talk as little as possible. Find where they want to be. Do your homework. And once you've identified where they're going to be, be patient. If you think you've waited enough, wait another half an hour. I guarantee you there's birds within the earshot of you that just haven't made their presence known. Especially gobblers that have pressured, they will come in silent and they will circle around you just like a big buck will. They will circle around you until they find, they'll, they'll work circles or work back and forth around you until they slowly inch in and get close enough to figure out what you are. And if they, if you hear them gobble, you should, especially if you hear them free gobble after 10 a.m., you should be able to kill that bird. Hmm. Jim Who wants to go next. Briar? Ciao. Um, I can go. Go ahead. Yeah, if you want talking of birds, go hunt Rios. That's not my tip, but go <laughs> um, kill Miriams. Yeah, that'll make you feel like a rock star. <laughs> Actually, Miriams is the only one I don't have on the slam. <laughs> I need to get out there like Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Um, so my tip of the week is actually is uh, pancetta. Mm-hmm. For those who like to cook, pancetta. Pancetta. Uh, it is essentially really super salty bacon, and man, when you render it. It leaves you with an enormous amount of grease. And I played around with some uh, pheasant legs from the Piney Woods hunt. Holy cow. But a little bit of pancetta, brown your bird in the pancetta. And since I was using legs, I then slow, I braised them down a little bit to get them nice and soft. Threw me some mushroom shallots and garlic. You don't need to add any other salt because the pancetta provides plenty. Plenty. Some rosemary and some thyme. Just a dash of sage. Throw some cr- uh, little stock in there. Let that cook down a little bit. Some heavy cream. Heavy cream. And then to top it off, just let it bubble up together and throw in a, some frozen green peas. And a pinch of nutmeg. Man, I'm not really a nutmeg guy, but that was fantastic. So the tip of the week really is pancetta. Learn how to cook with it. It'll... The pancetta rosemary thing, it's fantastic. Jim, I'm glad you brought up cooking because that got me my tip of the week. And that is if you – because you can do it with duck, venison, but if you process your own deer, save the bones and make yourself some stock, it'll be well worth it. So you're talking about saving – I mean, you said duck. Well, you you cook, you, you save your heart and liver and gizzards and yeah, that you can stuff. save the carapace too. You can yeah. cut the breast off and save the rest of that, and you braise that down. And use that make you some duck stock if you're for ducks. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Does, any good. game meat, you save the bones and make a stock out of it. But 
since we're talking cooking and tips, and we're getting into duck season here next weekend, we've got our tree ducks down here. Mm. So I know most guys breast most of their ducks. Do not overlook the legs on the tree ducks. If you're in an area where you're tree duck hunting, I like to save all my tree duck legs, and I keep the skin on them. I pluck my legs and keep the skin on. Save them up till the end of the season, and then I deep fry them like chicken wings. Right, Ooh. and I put them. I put them in the Thai chili sauce. Ooh. Right, and I finish them with just a little bit of wahio chili. Right, just a little sprinkle of wahio chili right on top of it with that chili sauce. And let me tell you what, man, that is probably the best eating duck you'll have, other than a confit. Well, gentlemen, go ahead and call an evening, Chuck. Where can where can everybody find you? Well, they can find me on uh, rebelyelpoutfitters dot com is the website, or they can go to Rebel Yelp Outfitters and Calls on FW on uh, Facebook. Um, you can also email me at huntmstr01 at gmail.com or call me on my cell phone, 813-918-7610. I'm currently booking hunts for next spring, so there's still time until November 30th to get your applications in for drawings. And uh, I have a few openings mid and late season. first two weeks are pretty much booked up already with different guys, but... Uh, on average, I do about thirty to thirty-five hunters a season, so we hunt every day. We'll get some of that link down yeah. in the podcast description, so you guys don't really even have to look for it, except to scroll down, and then you can uh, get a hold of Chuck and kill some turkeys. Absolutely, yeah, love to have y'all. Appreciate you joining us this week, Chuck. man. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I appreciate you guys having me out. Y'all have a good one. <laughs>